Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Warning, this podcast contains spoilers, folks, for She-Hulk Episode 8, for House of the Dragon Episode 7, and for Rings of Power, also Episode 7. So be warned. Watch that stuff before you come here. Hello, my name is Jason Concepcion. Welcome to X-Ray Vision, the Crooked Podcast, where we're diving deep. It's your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In this episode, we're going to be talking about She-Hulk episode eight with that episode's writer, the wonderful Cody Zig Ziglar. In the airlock, we're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, episode seven, Big Bad Balrog is here in the hive mind we're going to be talking about House of the Dragon Episode 7 with my good friend Aziz from the History of Westeros podcast, one of the best to ever do it. And, of course, he's going to be helping us with Ask the Maester this episode. If you want to jump around, check out the show notes for timestamps. And joining me today from New York City Comic-Con, the big city, I'm walking here. It's the great comics expert, the number one Godzilla writer. It's Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? How's it's New York? Me. I am very good. I also just realized I'm not wearing headphones. <laughs> so I'm going to put headphones on so it doesn't yeah, yeah, fuck yeah. up the recording. I'm recording here. Now that I got my headphones from Matt Murdock in Hell's yes. Kitchen, he was holding on to them He doesn't for need them. He doesn't need them. He's got extra good hearing, as we learned <laughs> That's today. Right. No, I'm good. I'm so happy to be here. It's going to be so fun. Well, let's dive into it. There's so much. First up, She-Hulk Episode 8. And joining us now to discuss She-Hulk Episode 8. Ribbit and Ripit is the writer of that very episode, the wonderful, the all-knowing Cody Zig Ziglar. <laughs> Cody, how are you, man? Great episode. Thank so you, good. brother. Uh, I'm, I'm good. I am, as as, uh, as you have both seen, I just whooped down half of a chopped cheese because I uh, literally <laughs> walked over here to this recording from Comic-Con. So <laughs> I, I have indeed been walking here and I got like a nice little chopped hey, cheese. Hey. So like uh, I feel like I'm really leaning into my Hell's Kitchen stay. So, like, I'm doing I love good. it. Well, lots to uh, unpack in this episode. But first, let me set the stage by reading this uh, this tweet by Televisor that was tweeted on September 29th. And that was uh, later quote tweeted by a head writer <laughs> of She-Hulk, Jessica Gao. Here is the tweet. Kevin Feige, please. I will literally suck your dick if it means Daredevil will finally show up in hashtag She-Hulk. There are only two episodes left and I've seen zero Charlie Cox to reiterate. I will perform oral sex on you, Kevin, in order to see more Daredevil. This is not a joke. Uh, and the tweet by Jessica Gout, time to collect. <laughs> uh, so Matt Murdock makes his triumphant MCU debut as Daredevil. Talk talk to us about writing this episode, man. Dude, it's it's I mean, I've been saying this all day, but the, the word is surreal. Like, it's so crazy. Uh, you know, three years ago is when, like, we wrote this stuff. But I'm sure Gao can attest to it. But I think the reason I was given this episode is because one day we were discussing, you know, like, hey, who can we use? They're like, well, you know contractually we can use 
Daredevil because like some Netflix thing or whatever. Yeah. So like we were talking about like how how does De- how does uh, Daredevil's powers work within the confines of the MCU? You're like you know, the TV show is like a little bit more grounded. Like can we like how can we comic book it? And they were like really going back and forth. They're like all right, so he can hear, but like how well can he hear? And I just happened to have the panel in Mark Wade's. Uh, or Daredevil, the trade paperback, and I pulled it out to the exact page where he's, there's a scene where he's walking uh, through the streets of, of uh, New York with uh, with uh, Foggy, and like he's like, you see like his powers going off and stuff, and yeah. like I yelled, this is how his power works, and they all were like, odd hushed, and they were like, calm down, uh, put, <laughs> put, put the comic book away, and then they're like, all right, I think we think, we think Zig has to write the Daredevil episode, so I think that's how I, I somehow uh, fanboyed my way into writing for Daredevil. That is incredible. And I am pretty <laughs> sure that when we spoke to Gal, she was like, you know, Cody would always be pulling out a comic. Like, Cody <laughs> yeah. So I'm pretty sure you are absolutely correct. So the best thing about this, I think, is like, one, you just, you have Matt down on Pat. Like, it oh, is, it's so much fun. I was saying this before we started recording, but like, a lot of the Netflix Daredevil is like, Matt is so hot and he's getting beaten yeah. up and he's got Catholic yeah. guilt and he's like so yeah. sexy and broken. But comic book Matt is kind of like dorphy and like a yeah. lot of the time, right? So it was kind of fun to much see that. Quippier than, much quippier than I think people realize. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's like, quippy, he's silly, he's, he's kind of an old hat at being a superhero and all of that really mm-hmm. comes across here. So could you talk about kind of getting to build and introduce that rapport between him and Jen? Because that's such a big comic book thing. Yeah, well, you know, um, again, like I, I mean, I'm sure like everyone here, like we love the uh, the Netflix Daredevil series, of course. Yeah. Um, and like uh, the really the, the way we're going into it, the the way that I sort of pitched it was that that the the, the scene where they're at the bar where he's talking about um, both worlds, like Jin can do this yeah. and She Hulk can do that, like that was pretty much my pitch for the episode was that like this is truthfully like Jin Jennifer's or She Hulk, I guess, red first like superhero mm-hmm. outing, like she's never done yeah. superhero shit, so like classic comic like you have a team up and like it makes perfect sense to bring matt like they have a relationship in the comics like and, and there are very few other lawyer superheroes within the marvel world <laughs> yeah. that like you want to play together and also like you know their dynamic in the comics is super fun like mm-hmm. I, I i zeb would always reference the uh the panel in this she-hulk comic where um, they're all like on the golden gate bridge and yeah, like yeah, the Matt's, that one. Stuff. So yeah good. yeah so and Matt's just, so good. he's just busted out like a, a squat in midair like yeah that's the fun dynamic of the relationship so like we really wanted to bring that into it, and um, Gal was very, uh, very, very. She was very kind. Let me pretty much run wild with it, and uh, 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 like that was like our. This was supposed to be like our. Oh, She Hulk has transitioned into like a superhero. Like mm-hmm. obviously, still learning, but like this is the proper mentor to have, and like that's the, definitely the energy we went into when like writing this episode. Like I was. Like I, writing a, a team up has always been the dream, but let alone <laughs> with like Tatiana and and, and Charlie Cox. It's like that was the <laughs> fucking dream, dude. I know. You, I just came away being like, "Fucking, I, we need, we need much more of this. Yeah. <laughs> like, whether this is yeah. a series or something." I love, I, I love that mentorship, and I love the way you know, as as uh, Matt gives a dissertation on the difference between goons and henchmen. Yeah. That's something he's very familiar with. Of course, you know, he's, he's waded through warehouses and bars, a plenty of both varieties. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, they're talking about how how they're going to approach this particular problem of, of invading uh, the lily pad. And Jen's like, well, just let me do my thing. And I love the way it, you know, Matt's like, what thing? You've never done this. Mm-hmm. Don't do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it's it that dynamic is so perfectly distilled uh, from the comics. Um, how much of that, like, just 
like, how, how, did you, was that a collaboration also between the actors? Like, how much of that just, like, emerged from this kind of, like, the process of just doing it and of seeing them do it? I think from what, I mean, I, Gal was on, I remember she was texting you when she was shooting that episode. She was like, uh, fucking Tat and Charlie have, like, she was just, like, spark emojis. Like, they have such yeah. good chemistry. <laughs> so, like, a lot of that, I think, was also, like, rewritten on the day by Gal. Because, mm-hmm. like, you know, you see them working together and she was like, yeah, like, the fr- I think remember the first scene they shot, but she was texting me about the uh, the bar scene, which is like the first like flirty scene in, yeah. in, in the episode. And she was like, "Yeah, they they have such good chemistry. I think people are really going to dig it." So like, I think she really leaned into it. And like, the fact that we got like the first walk of shame in the MCU was really like that was really <laughs> that's that, so funny. That's like in the costume, <laughs> so funny. <laughs> so the other good. thing that's funny is. Anytime someone gets smacked in the head with a titanium <laughs> stick, like, yeah. there's nothing funnier in Marvel comics than getting knocked out by a stick. Yeah. Truly. It's like, here's, some, here's a little CTE for you. Bow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, so, yeah, and the, the funnest thing about this episode is, like, especially in the lead up, you guys really got to play with the fact that, like, it's not just Matt, you know, in his first long form return after that, like very mm-hmm. funny, you know, cameo in Spider-Man. But you also got to play with this idea that there's like this other character everyone wants to see and it's Leapfrog. <laughs> so could you talk a little bit about like bringing in Leapfrog and having mm-hmm. like Eugene be Leapfrog instead of his dad or at least it be more of a legacy thing and just kind of yeah. generally the fun that you had bringing in this like trashy rich kid supervillain. Yeah. Uh, I got to, Leapfrog was 100% the pitch from Zeb Wells. For some reason he was a huge... <laughs> Frogs. He was a huge frogman stand. He would not. Sh- he would not shut up about like you saw his episode before. Like that's yeah. like he loves yeah. those like f list characters. So he was really really gunning for Leapfrog. And we're like, yeah, this is a dorky character we could put in. And I think we really like the idea of like you know it's L A based. So like, does it make more sense to have like him be like, oh, he's like an L A rich kid. So mm-hmm. like, yeah. you know, so like you know the idea of, like his dad is like on the level, but like Eugene is just like a snotty rich kid that has millions of dollars and like. He likes to cosplay as Tony Stark on the weekend. And he's a dipshit. <laughs> and, like, you know, the idea that he's, like, surround himself with a bunch of goons who are just, like, yes men who, like, will hang out with him at his leap head. Like, that's very much the energy that we wanted to bring for, for Leapfrog. That's how we thought we could bring it, like, a nice, fun update to him and make it, like, a little bit L.A., more L.A. specific. Yeah. Something that I've really been amazed at is the way this show has predicted the conversation around the show whether <laughs> it's like it's incredible whether it's the uh, honestly and sadly predictable reaction of like the toxic the the, the toxic fan base or mm. in this episode the way it seemed to predict the Nikki is the bad guy like <laughs> theory that has been floating around. That is a, a theory that has emerged of late that it's uh, that it's Nikki who is the leader of the bad guys. Oh who wow! Is secretly, I did, I've not yeah, heard that's, that. Yeah, that has been going around. Oh wow! That, uh, that and so there is that moment where you know, post the hookup with Matt, uh, Jen's breaking the fourth wall, being like, why is the episode still going? It's weird <laughs> that it's still going. Is there like some big twist that's going to happen? And then Nikki like jumps out, but, yeah. and there's like, even the kind of like ominous diegetic music that is making <laughs> you think like, oh, here it is. But then she has, you know, her makeup uh, gear and she's getting uh, Jen ready for the gala. Mm-hmm. Like, are you surprised at how well, like, you're just finding out about the Nikki is the bad guy theory. Yeah. But I was like, holy shit, they even predicted that people would be oh, like, wow. that Nikki is the bad guy. Like, yeah, how how much of that was, 
has surprised you? That- I didn't even know that because I didn't know that Nikki was a bad guy. It was a thing that was around. But, uh, you know, I think that that was that scene was added by Gal. Like, so, like, I think it's really a testament to how fucking on the pulse mm-hmm. Jessica is. And also, like, yeah. she's been writing forever. Like, you guys interviewed, like, she's been writing yeah. forever. Like, truly, like, her, I think her first two years writing, she wrote, like, 30 scripts, which is just unheard of wow. um, for, for a writer. So, like, she just knows that shit, like, the back of her hand, like, in and out. And, like, I think she also, like, she's a huge MCU fan. So I think she also... Uh, knows how the fans would react to things, mm-hmm. um, particularly when you have me and Zeb and Jackie Gale in the room yelling about MCU theories. <laughs> you know, so like, I, think, I think the call was definitely coming inside the house for some of that. But like, um, I think I maybe mean, not. You guys already touched on it, but like the, like the the intelligentsia side of it, like all oh, that's yeah. all those dudes are just so easy to predict because yeah. they really have. Yeah. They have one song that they've been singing for like 15, 20 years. Whether yep. it's like. You know, oh, they made six of nine as a lady, gross. Or whether it's a, uh, you know, it's like, oh, what? Cap- Captain Marvel's a woman now. Get out of here! Yeah. So they're like, oh they're, they're like so easy. They're so easy to predict, and like to the point where like their insults mean nothing because it's just like yeah. it's just like you know chatter in the background. But like all that stuff is is so easy, and also like it was really funny that you know. They would just literally take some of the tweets that they said when the shield was first announced and put them into the show. Like yeah, I personally yeah, love that so touch good. a lot. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Jessica was saying like. For sure that one of the funniest things was it just shows how like absolutely irrelevant it is because you yeah. could guess yeah. it three years before and it just never yeah. evolved. Mm-hmm. Like you're just making and to see. So kind of, I guess, something I found really interesting is like when we see the intelligentsia kind of agents or whoever they are today, the guys, they had a very like, um, you know, the the misrepresentative use of the anonymous kind of the mask that became known as anonymous that was obviously V for Vendetta. So could you talk a little bit about like introducing like members of the intelligentsia for the first time and kind of putting a face to them? Yeah, I'm trying to remember how it came up in the room. I feel like it was had, had to be a, either a pitch from me, Zeb or Jackie, but we were they were looking for like, you know, evil organizations that like could be a little bit more approachable. That wasn't like the the, the syndicate of evil or whatever. They were like, mm-hmm. these are just like, obviously just like nerds that think they're self, they think they're really smart. Like, you know, you guys can go on any subreddit or 4chan and see yeah. how these how these people operate. So like, we wanted to take it something like that and also like make it a little bit more, um, more, I guess, as grounded as it can be in a world full of like gods and, and stuff. But like, <laughs> that's a, if you were to take that out of the show and put it in like fucking SVU, it would be a real thing. Like yeah. you could very easily see that, 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 um, that that one to one, and also that's the scary part. Like that's the that's mm. the thing that Gal was really talking about in the rooms. Like it's scary when like you could walk down the street and any of these dudes could be taking pictures of you and send it to like their website yeah. because that's mm-hmm. what these dudes do. Mm-hmm. Like you know, any like they're like you know even lower level paparazzi only they're there explicitly for the idea of like revenge porn, which is very yeah. much how this episode's yeah. in. And like you know, it's I was just watching a doc on um what was that website? Uh, is anyone up? I just yeah. watched the docs like. Yeah. For those who don't know, that, that was a website when, like, we were younger. Yep. That was around. Mm-hmm. And, like, that was before there were rep- revenge porn laws. So, like, they would just have a yep. site where people would just, like, not only, like, upload revenge porn, but, like, they would fully steal pictures from people and upload yep. it. And, like, and, like that put was very names much of women that they wanted yeah. people yeah. to get revenge porn or photos yeah, of. Yeah, like, they're, like they're where they worked, their Facebooks and stuff. And, like, the idea that that could happen to someone who is impenetrable, like, that, I think that was, like, the, the emotional mm. end for, like, it can make it really scary and, and really... um really approachable for like a uh, thing that like a lot of I think women deal with when they date people like um that's certainly yeah. uh, I, I think to me that to me like one of the more scarier things about the, uh, the the arc of the whole series yeah when you are approaching an episode like this and there's significant action scenes in it you know we get mm-hmm. you know people have been like 
complaining that there is not like a daredevil hallway scene kind of action scene <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in uh, MCU TV and the Disney plus uh, offerings of, of Marvel's fairs. Uh, how do you, how do you approach that in the script? Is it just like, and then she Hulk and daredevil fight uh, and then, <laughs> and then Hulk and daredevil jumps take down out the goods. side of a cool. <laughs> yeah. Or is it more, yeah. Or is it more detailed than that? Like how, how does that work uh, in, would, in the, in the writing process? I had I had to look at the script, but I think for like I think when their first fight scene, it was like um, Jin or She Hulk punches at Daredevil and he like dodges aerobatically. I think that's like sort of like the loose mm. the loose dialogue for what or loose uh, action lines I had for it. But like for the hallway scene, I think this is also like a Zeb pitch was that like uh, it was supposed to be a, a one a reference to like the, the the hallway scenes and all the the Netflix shows yeah. and like I can't remember what it said exactly, but I was like. Daredevil prepares to fight out a bunch of goons at a hallway scene a la, like, Netflix, and then, like, Jen just comes in and, like, takes it all out. Because, like, <laughs> you don't want to... Like, like, you know, how do you, how do you really top that? But, like, um, I was definitely, like... I remember pretty... I think I remember pretty well putting in, like, really, like, really wanted to nail, like, the acrobatics of Daredevil. Because, like, yeah. for me, like, when I'm sure you guys can relate, too. Like, whenever you'd see those panels of, like, Daredevil or Captain America or, or Spider-Man, any like acrobatic character where they would have like the ghost images of them like yeah. bounding off the wall mm-hmm. and like flipping off a thing. Like those are always my favorite, favorite moments. And like, oh yeah. Yeah, like, like, like for me personally, like seeing like Spider-Man 2 where like Peter like flies through like the little thin railing and like yeah. he's chasing Doc Ock. Yeah. Like that to me is the coolest shit on the planet. Like I love seeing that. Like that to me is like, that's like, that's the coolest part of like superpowers is being like that acrobatic and that yeah. universe. Like being able to see like, you know, it's crazy that you, know, you get to write something and like you see fucking Daredevil dodge a, a Hulk ground pound by flipping through the. <laughs> no, I was gonna and, say like, like, I'm gonna know? say that scene when we first see him and he's like going, he like jumps down the side of the like parking lot. <laughs> that is exactly what I thought of was those ghost images where you can almost still yeah, see him on totally. each different level, you know? Okay, because it's like 20 percent more like than reality. Like yeah. you know, like it, it's like 20 yeah. percent more than like a guy who's really good at parkour could do. Like exactly. that's always like about like those street level guys. Yeah, it's like it's it's just it's it, you could almost believe you could see it, but you know it's just a little bit more graceful than it would have been. Okay, yeah, yeah, look, yeah. I'm gonna ask you a big question here because there uh, is a moment. And I'm sure, like, this definitely feels like something that you might not have just casually thrown in. But i that's my favorite thing about these shows is they throw in these mm. moments that will just blow up my brain. Like, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier moment where Sam's like, none of us get paid. And it just, like, fucking <laughs> ruined my head for, like, two weeks. And I'm, like, writing these insane articles about the, the economics. So the moment in this, which I was very... Matt just casually is like, oh, you know the Sokovia Accords have been repealed. Can you just talk about that, please? Oh, yes, we, we must say that. I, that was such a small drop, and I was like, wait, what? They revealed it? That's, that's a Jessica ad. Love that. And when they were shooting, because I think, I can't remember what I originally had in there, but I think it was something like, um, I think it, it might have been like really dense, like lawyer talk, because we had like an actual lawyer in the episode, and like that's when I got out really all the lawyer talk. But like, I think, I'm assuming she had some conversation. She was like, can I just like, repeal this thing because like we haven't really talked about it in like a fucking decade and also like it really comes up I a lot of stuff so, like that was a that was a gow ad um also the, the, the um wolverine claws that nikki does the end was also <laughs> a really fun gow ad like i remember i got like i remember reading like the production script and be like oh fuck i wish i would have thought of that but, uh, <laughs> 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 no i love that and it's kind of it makes something that we talk about a lot is like how do you set up the mcu for like the x-men and all that kind of stuff yeah. and actually like uh resetting things so that like more grounded versions of things like the the mutant registration act and stuff are 
now in the past, like the Sokovia laws have been repealed, it opens up the space to do something that's a lot more textual mm-hmm. as we move into like introducing more mutants and, and more characters. Something that She-Hulk yeah. has done a lot of, by the way. Introducing yeah, I mean, a lot obviously, of mutants. <laughs> obviously, yeah. obviously I, I'm biased, but like one thing that I really have enjoyed about the show, because again, I've been almost three years removed from it outside of seeing mm-hmm. like being on set a couple that's of days so or like, or seeing like, you know, like PS2 graphics, like T-Pose, yeah. Tatiana, like that's, I've been pretty removed for it. It's like seeing like, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the show is that like, it does feel like a comic book as far as like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, these characters are going to show up. Like you need to hear the fucking backstory of how Porcupine got his powers or like yep. yeah. how like, you know, a man bull was created other than like a throwaway line that you would see and like you're writing like a mm-hmm. comic book or something like that. And like, I really like that that has added that sort of like, you know, um, not the texture, but also like, oh, this is how big the universe is. Yeah. Like, it's big to the, it feels like the a comic where, like, book. Yeah, yeah it really like, does. Where, like your neighbor can have superpowers, but like he still works at like a janitor. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. have, he doesn't use it for mm-hmm. like for like for like crusading. He's just a dude that like yeah, he can like shoot, he can control rats. Like that's his power. <laughs> like he doesn't use it for good or for evil. Like so, like I'm really excited for like some of the future shows and, and movies and stuff that like sort of explore that. Where like yeah, like you're you could have the guy in your building that has powers, has ice mm-hmm. powers. And, like his name's Johnny. He just like goes to work like every other slow. Like I really, really have enjoyed that yeah. in the show. But again, I'm also very biased. So no, nah, it's, um, it's the most I'm it's, acknowledging that. But it is the most comic booky kind of representation of the way that in those in those universes, those characters do just exist, and that's something yeah, that we've I, kind of really loved about it. It's like the walk of shame. Like I love that we are in the place <laughs> in the MCU now where it's just like there's just a superhero walking around in the daytime, and everybody's like, oh. Yeah, they might sneak a selfie, but that's it. You know, it's it's really, really normal. The other thing I liked and it was a subtle thing was and I wonder if you could talk about it was. Matt being kind of surprised that Jen hasn't heard of Daredevil, letting us know, letting us know that he's been at this. Uh He's been doing this. And like, sure, you know, Jen has not been the most other than the fact that her cousin is a Hulk has not been the most like plugged into like superhero uh, culture. So. Uh, any idea how long uh, Matt's been been going about his Daredevil business? We have been talking about it. We didn't handle it on a solid date, but it has been a while because there are uh, like an early runner in the room was like, "How big is Hell's Kitchen really?" Like I'm here right now. I was like, <laughs> "It's like you know, fifteen. It's like 10, 15 blocks. It's not like a huge area that he's covering. So like you know, it's not like he's like anyone outside of like New York." area where like really know who he was so like mm-hmm. yeah like yeah we we never let him on a hard date but like he's been doing it for like a while like he's a seasoned pro like the whole idea is that like if there are like people that have been doing it from the jump in my mind like i don't know if this is true or not or how foggy sees it kevin foggy sees it but like i was like oh he's like one of the og guys like yeah. i imagine he got his powers like uh like before like you know what captain american was doing his thing like before people knew superpowers or, like i mean i guess he got his supporters but like before like the avengers were like mm-hmm. a big thing like you would have like oh there's the there's the daredevil of hell's kitchen save me from getting mud like i think like that's <laughs> Like, I feel like maybe he didn't have the branding just yet, Mm -hmm. but, like, I think he was very much, like, he's been doing stuff for a while. No, I think that you actually did such a great job. We were actually talking about it before we came. That moment where Matt is giving Jen the advice in the bar, that Mm -hmm. tells you that story of what you just said. Like, that's exactly how it felt. And I was saying, like, I would love to see Matt 
take on that role in future shows or movies yeah. where he kind of gets to be that for everyone. He can kind of yeah. be cranky and a bit like, well, I've done this before, yeah. rolling my eyes, but he can also be yeah. giving good advice. Like Jen should be out there being a superhero as well as a lawyer. Mm. Matt has done a very good job at that, even though he's constantly breaking the law and he's a little hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> like, still, <laughs> he, he has made a career, you know? And so I guess that kind of leads to another really cool thing. What was it like for you? This is the first episode where She-Hulk gets the iconic suit so like what was yeah. it like to you to get to yeah. write that in and then get to like finally see it in the purple and white that luke made for her like this is like you said her first superhero outing so it's the first she-hulk suit in the mcu i mean look all of it was uh all of it was very crazy all of it was 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 like the dream nerd come true but like being like this is like I, in the room we're like this is going to be like her like suiting up moment because up until that up until that point in the episode like she's obviously she's been caught between two worlds which is like being a lawyer and being super or being um shield lawyer and like being Jim, but also the idea of like slowly been being pushed up against like the idea of the superhero shit so mm-hmm. like the superhero never stuff at all so like getting like you know being able to like finally see it like i remember jessica um uh like was like showing me like some of like the prelim like pre-bed stuff and i was like oh it's crazy that like that's the suit like i remember yep. playing Marvel's yeah. Capcom 3, like, that's yeah, the suit. Yeah, like, that's, yeah, the, yeah, that's, that's it. That's what I was going to say, video games, keep, baby. Uh, yeah, like, when's the bus going to come up and hit and hit up Daredevil or like, <laughs> like, for, for level 3 or whatever? Like, it was it was really cool. And, like, um, I can't, I cannot um, thank Gao enough for, like, letting me, like, giving me this opportunity. Like, it was, like, my first episode, like, actual, like, you know, scripted TV, like, not storyboard-driven animated stuff. And, like, getting, like, for me anyway, I was like, I was like, oh, shit, I'm the guy that has to introduce Daredevil. Like, I hope I don't fuck it up. Like, <laughs> you I'm did the guy it, you like, did it, you smashed it, you smashed <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, thank you. But, like, it was, it was it was really cool and really surreal. And, like, I, I cannot thank Gao enough for, like, giving me the opportunity to, like, take my two toys and bash them in the sand, the, the sandbox like I've been wanting to forever. Like, my, <laughs> the, the, for me, like, the end goal was always, like, running to write for Marvel. Like, I want to get to that point. It's like, having the first job, be like, not only do you get to write for She-Hulk, but you get to write She-Hulk and Daredevil. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, wow. Well, like, I guess I could just, like, quit now. Like, I never <laughs> Right, anything else, you know? Well, Zig, congratulations. We can't wait Thank to watch the, the finale. Have a great time in New York. Thank you. Uh, yeah, see and you soon. I, and I, yeah, see, yeah. Uh, t- please take a picture of you of you two meeting in public. Oh, yeah, let's <laughs> do will, it. We will, we will. Yeah. That's, that's the goal now. That's the, the NYCC yeah. goal. <laughs> yeah. All right, up next, Rings of Power. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Crooked is bringing you the election coverage you love to hate with Crooked Radio every weekend in October on Sirius XM Progress and on the Sirius XM app. Join our lineup of podcast hosts, candidates, experts, and more, including Pod Save the World with Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and guests like... 
Bernie Sanders as we break down all the issues that matter this November, dive into the conversation shaping our current political climate and give the only 100 percent correct opinions in politics anywhere. You don't want to miss this. Subscribe now and get up to four months free of SiriusXM. See offer details at SiriusXM.com slash crooked. We're stepping out of the airlock and into into the place that, you know, into the Southlands. Uh, hashtag Mordor, hashtag Mount Doom. Uh, <laughs> Hashtag Theo to jail uh, to talk about <laughs> Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. Uh, the Eye, directed by Charlotte Brandstrom, written by Jason Cahill. Uh, the Southlands, folks, it's a mess. Hot mess. <laughs> Hot mess. Ashy. Very bad. It's never coming back from this. You're, we know for a fact. Smoggiest place you've ever been. Everyone is covered, as Saul pointed out, with a thin layer of paprika. It's Things are going bad. Everyone's dusty. The survivors, dusty as they are, are emerging from the destruction uh, wrought by the creation of Mount Doom. It's all Theo's fault. Moving on (laughs) from that, Galadriel finds Theo uh, and uh, helps him out of the dust. Everyone else is kind of like slowly straggling to their feet. Muriel is rallying survivors, including Isildur and Valandil, but then a building falls on them. The building is on fire, and that's bad. Across the way, our Harfoot friends come to a scene of carnage, which is created by debris that was thrown clear from the newly created Mount Doom. Sadok gets the stranger to try and heal a tree, uh, but the results are kind of scary for the Harfoots, and Nori almost gets crushed. And then the Harfoots basically are like, is the stranger good? We don't think so. <laughs> Over at Casa Doom, and by the way, I could spend 50 years with Elrond and Durin. They are the best. And as we learned this week, which we kind of had already had hints of in like episode five, basically their friendship, shall we say love, their love. It's it's beautiful. It is beautiful. It's so well brought together by these two actors, Robert Amayo and uh, Owain Smith. But also, it changes the path of Middle-earth and the world. Their it love really and Durin, especially during the fourth love for Elrond, that is the reason that so many things occur. And also, yeah, we're going to talk about it, but I could, I could just watch a whole season of just them. The impact is from this episode... And their relationship, as you noted, is far-reaching and will reach thousands of years into the future. Uh, Elrond is making his pitch to Big Daddy Durin, uh, King Durin III, uh, and is like, hey, listen, we need the Mithril. Here's the deal. Access to the Mithril in exchange for 500 years of game, grain, and timber. And the rest of the lords, uh, dwarven lords, are like, this sounds pretty good. But the answer is a hard no. Durin Fourth uh, is distraught because that is his great friend. Uh, but Big Daddy Durin is like, no, the fate of the elves was decided many years ago uh, by minds much wiser than our own, and we're out. Uh, Disa, meanwhile, is furious, uh, and it's a very sad day. Elrond takes it really well. Kids, all things He's a considered. chill guy. He's actually very respectful. He was like, you know what? We did what we could. Did we did best. what we could, and we'll let's see what happens next. You know, we had a great, we had a very, very good run of immortality, and uh, and now you know we don't say, we don't say goodbye. We say farewell. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Durin is in despair, as we noted. 
like weeping, absolutely heartbroken when Elrond leaves Durin, just like heartsick, throws the chunk of mithril across the table. It lands on the leaf that uh, Elrond had uh, showed to Durin as proof that the tree is is dying, and then all of a sudden the, the leaf, you know, turns from black to alive, fall colored kind of yellow-orange, and Durin is like, that's it, we have to mine the mithril. And he goes after Elrond. Galadriel and Theo spy some orcs and they hide from them. Theo is like, I'm ready for revenge. I want to fight these orcs. And Galadriel, I love Galadriel. Height of hypocrisy right here gives him a lecture on not letting the evil of your foe infect your own heart. I know. Galadriel, babe. Look Look in the mirror, mirror, babe. (laughs) I wonder if, like, I wonder if she's, like, feeling shamed because Adar basically said to her last time, like, you are the corrupted elf. So I wonder if she's finally learning some lessons. But also, like, you can't just, you can't just, like, uh, inspirational poster away the 2,000 years of letting that shit into your heart, babe. (laughs) Right. And, like, uh, uh, also Theo is not aware that Galadriel only an episode ago was like, I want to do the biggest genocide ever on orcs and I want to do it while Adar, you are still alive so you, so you can, can watch. watch me. <laughs> so you can watch me do it. Honestly, uh, like, these two are perfect pair because they have they both committed perfect. many crimes and it makes <laughs> a lot of sense that Galadriel's the one who's like, Theo. Don't hold this in your heart, man. It's not Don't on let you. That anger. It's okay. Yeah. Like you didn't really do anything wrong. Don't worry about it. And, and, and Don't like, let that anger get to you. Thea. Don't the yeah, the weight of that shamed, you got to put it down because you'll be carrying it for a long time. And by the way, here's a sword. Yeah, here's Maybe a sword, a Theo. Now. You know, another sword. You just had one magical sword that didn't go very <laughs> well. But you know what? Here's another one, babe. Kind of a <laughs> Kind of a mixed message, no, to be like, hey, don't let don't let the evil of our foe infect you. Don't let this vengeance, you know, pollute your heart. Here's a sword also. Like, let's kill him, too. But let's do it with a good heart. It's uh, glad it, it all kind of also fits with the kind of broader theory, which we will talk about that honest that Halbrand possibly as Sauron possibly working to yet again corrupt more people including mm-hmm. Galadriel mm-hmm. is succeeding yes. is absolutely succeeding if that is indeed what he's doing yeah and also we'll uh, talk about this but like whether or not it's intentional because I think it it leans into yeah. something that you spoke about that's kind of the message of the show throughout so yeah it's really exciting stuff uh, meanwhile, Elendil can't find his Sildur and he's growing very worried about it and is quite concerned that he might have passed uh, and then when he uh, encounters Muriel, realizes that uh oh, it looks like Isildur did buy it when that uh, when that burning building uh, fell on everyone, and also he realizes that Muriel is blind now because of the the injuries she incurred in the explosion and also the uh, the falling house. Sadak gives the stranger uh, his drawing of stars and then is like, "Get out of here! <laughs> Thanks for everything, but get out of here!" But as the stranger leaves, we Mm-mm. see that there is a blossom blooming in the tree. That he was working on, which lets you know that maybe the stranger is good, is kind of doing things. Uh, Nori bids the stranger a warm farewell, also gives him an apple, and it's it's really sad. You can sense the stranger trying to come to terms with everything that is mm-hmm. happening and his own inability to speak, uh, and it is it's it's wrenching stuff. Um, 
Durin and Elrond get caught mining the mithril. <laughs> and it turns out there's a lot of mithril. Oh, my God. It, they find... We all thought... The vein, the famed vein of Mithril. Yeah. We thought they'd probably already found it because these guys were already risking their lives to to find the Mithril. But no, actually, a little bit of rock falls out of the wall and they find the famed vein of it Mithril a, that we all know who lives at the vein. bottom. It is a rich yeah. vein. More, as Duran says, more than we ever could have imagined. Yes, there is someone. There is someone stirring right now at the bottom of that very cavern. Uh, the end result of this is Elrond gets banned from Casadum probably for life, and Durin gets stripped of perhaps his future inheritance. Uh, Nori wakes up to find that the stranger, whatever the stranger did, worked. The trees are healed. There is copious fruit uh, growing on the trees now, and while but later while drawing water, Poppy comes across a footprint. There are strangers in the land. Mm-mm. Everybody goes into hiding. Uh, and they watch three very strange figures dressed all in white but looking very, very ominous go to the trees. Clearly, they are on the trail of the stranger, and the leader points in the direction in which they believe the stranger traveled. Nori goes to head them off. Very courageous Harfoot, yeah. Nori. Uh, and But the beings are too powerful. And even as Largo tries to come to defend her, uh, they, they – like absorb the torch that they are being confronted with this this the leader of these beings and then through some sort of magic sets all the harfoot dwellings alight and it is very scary um at the Numenorean survivors camp theo sees the wreckage of everything that he has done <laughs> he sees <laughs> the, people with like the consequences limbs. of his actions <laughs> like they're, they're like all blown apart severely injured but thank god he reunites with his mother Bronwyn who by the way almost died also because of the things that he did yeah Bronwyn and Aaron <laughs> dear good news they're both fine everyone was like yes. whoa did they all die no they're actually fine don't worry about it Elendil is, like, desperate to return to Numenor. He's like, we never should have came here. This is all such a huge mistake. Muriel promises Galadriel uh, that the vengeance of Numenor and the support of Numenor is hers in this uh, struggle to come. Elendil, meanwhile, is heartbroken because he's pretty sure that Isildur is dead. Isildur's not dead. Honestly, it would probably be better for everyone if Isildur was dead. Not going to lie. It would be better. Long term, it would be better if Isildur was dead, but we know that Isildur has many He's got things many to do things in the future. To do. That's right. Uh, the Harfoots at Nori's urging resolve to follow the stranger to warn him of the danger that is on his trail. Bronwyll tells Galadriel that Halbrand uh, is a king, and also he's here, and also he's alive. He's been badly wounded. He is in need of elvish medical care. Very, very, uh, very, very convenient. Gal and Halbrand ride off, and the people cheer him as uh, their king, which feels ominous, even though it was presented as very, very inspiring and happy. Yeah, and it doesn't bode well for Galadriel, because at this point, if he is Sauron, which does feel very likely, yeah. she's about to take him straight to the elves, where he's going to be like, hey, how about we forge some rings? And everyone yeah. will be like, oh, I've got great an idea. idea. Here's a crazy pitch right here. Let's let's forge some rings of power. What does everybody say? Had some cool mithril. Like, yeah, Celebrimbor is going, really well is going to be like, you. good. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I didn't know what to do with it until right now. Uh, Disa convinces Durin to go against his father since one day this kingdom will be theirs and, of course, the mithril and what to do with it will be his decision. Meanwhile, far below, 
a Balrog has awakened. Okay, but no, I just need to specify something here because this is a huge moment in canon. So we all know this is what Saruman says. Like he, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says like the dwarves were greedy. They were mining yeah. too much Mithril and they woke up the Balrog. No. We see that that's not the case. What? We can't trust Saruman? I know. Shocking. During the third, in a little petty moment that the dwarves are greedy and that they mine too much. And um, yeah, this is a great bit of contextual change where what we actually see is Durin the third, who didn't want to mine, he throws this the leaf into the mines and the leaf is what wakes the Balrog. So really, it was him all along. I truly, I'm taking it. Durin the fourth was right. Durin the third now woke the Balrog. Also, this means the Balrog awoke much earlier than we thought. Yes. So very shocking behavior. And then the most shocking and, moment of all, apart from to people who had guessed this already. <laughs> uh, and of course, the Balrog will eventually lead to the extinction of the of Khazad-dûm, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, after this, Adar is acclaimed as the Lord of the Southlands. And they're like, what do you think? Are we going to keep calling it the Southlands? What do we name it? And he thinks about it for a second, uh, and we understand that it, this place is about to be called Mordor. Okay. want to quickly uh, shout out a listener, Tea and Then Coffee, who reached out to us on Instagram uh, and said, This is so good. Once you and Rosie said that it made sense how careless Halbrand was about his companions who died at sea in episode two and how vicious his... He was toward assailants in Numenor. Also, I'm feeling that the stranger is Gandalf. We have seen wizards die and come back into human form with amnesia and a need to rediscover themselves. Also, the fact that he was saved, nursed, loved by a Harfoot would explain Gandalf's unique love of and connection with hobbits. Uh, this is something that you have uh, written about also at various places. Yes, and I love this idea. I, I, from the earliest day... This was my thought when I first saw him. He's tall. He's wearing gray. Yeah. He's kind of angry and cranky, but also he is, does nature magic. But they would they do a really good job of playing with the idea that he could also be Sauron. You know, we saw the evil magic of the ice and this kind of different yeah. things. But I love this. And this listener just did such a great job of, of describing it. I mean, the Harfoot connection is really, when you're it watching feels, those scenes, yes. you can just see... Ian McKellen Gandalf with the hobbits in the movies and kind of why he cares so much and why he loves to be with them. I really, I love this theory. I think it would be quite lovely if it came to pass. And I think that the Harfoots have been one of my favorite part of the season, along with the Durin and Elrond. So I think that could be really cool. And there's like a lot of journey they could still go on. But something that's really interesting, why I think a lot of Tolkien like readers didn't necessarily immediately jump to that conclusion generally it's thought that the the wizards they didn't come until the third age so this would be a little right. bit of a timeline shift but they're doing that a lot in this show and I think they're it really doing works. that in general yeah so I, I I would love if he was Gandalf and I think the thing that would be really cool is to see it's shown us the way that even the good, you know, inverted commas wizards, they have the potential, their power comes from the same place. They have the potential to use both sides of magic, you know, kind of like the now defunct gray Jedi. So I, I think yeah. it's really cool. And I, I love this one. I'm so glad that they they sent us that because it just made me so happy. And I think how Brand Sauron going into the finale is feels so <laughs> likely. It feels 
It feels so okay. Let's list. You just wrote about the uh, the top uh, suspects to be <laughs> Sauron. Sauron. Let's rank. The, let's talk about the Sauron suspects okay. and also talk about these uh, three mysterious figures who are now on the trail of the stranger. Yes. So let's talk about them. I obviously I do think how I think how Brand is our most likely suspect. Okay. I, I I it feels so much more likely now. Also, as well, like you know what? I just think that. It would be so brilliantly tragic to to have it be that Galadriel was so consumed by her own yeah. kind of fear that she ended up bringing Sauron to the elves, to yes. Mordor. She brought Sauron to a space where he was able to create Mordor if that's what happened. Also, something that I really love that you spoke about was that the kind of thesis of this show was the first line of the show, which is, you know, nothing begins as evil, I think is right. the kind of the general gist. So there's also this really sad version of it where Halbrand isn't yet become Sauron. You know who this is the early days. I like that too, yeah. And I think that that's something just very... That could, again, add to the kind of tragedy of this story. So, yeah, the three new characters, I think the main one that everyone from the trailer was the Dweller, who's the hooded one with the shaved white head who we see Mm -hmm. this week burn the Harfoot's cabin. A lot of people thought that was Sauron, especially in the Anatar guys. Seems unlikely now. They have two travelers uh, that they travel with. And the nomad and the aesthetic, I believe, or the aesthetic, I'm sure Saul will be Mm. able to tell me which one. Um, But basically, I think from what I've read, they are more than likely, there's two resounding theories. One is that they are like a cult of Melkor, like a cult of dark magic. Mm. Tolkien wrote about those a lot. So, Or there is this sect called the Blue Wizards who were sent to basically stop Sauron. So if they are the a reimagining of the Blue Wizards, them being sent after the stranger actually brings us to our next top contender, which is that the stranger actually is Sauron. It, again, it's the kind of straightest line. Yeah. If you really want, you know, it lines up with what Adar has told us, that he struck down Sauron. Perhaps he's telling the truth. It certainly feels like he's sincere. Uh, and, and whatever you think of him, he seems sincere in his dedication to the orcs as his yep. children. Uh, and that that would line up, right? The stranger's appearance, the, not knowing who he was. And the fact the, the that kind he's of ominous in the, powers he has. the crater looked very much like the Eye of Sauron. Like there was, yes. what, And also then you would have, if we're talking about kind of emotional gut punches, while I do think Halbrand will be the biggest one because it would be this betrayal of Galadriel betraying herself. The truth is that in reality, the stranger would also be very painful because of his connection to the Harfoots and how the Hobbits helped him, which would lead to this terrible kind of era for the for Middle Earth and and the people who have to live under yeah. under Sauron. So either way, I think it's very interesting. I yeah, and there is still a chance that like the dweller is actually Anatar and and or there's even a chance that Sauron is someone we haven't met yet. But I think at this point they've done such a good job seeding these characters that could be. I would be surprised if in the finale they don't reveal that it's one of them. What how are you gonna feel 
if they don't tell us who Sauron is in the finale. I, I, I will be, I, I'll be absolutely, you know, stressed. Cliffhangers are huge. You yeah. need a cliffhanger. Um, and I feel as if it's almost a lock that we will understand which one of these characters yeah. is Sauron by the end of this. Like an season. orc will like sneak into the elven castle and be like, I'm so glad you've returned. Lord right, and then a slow turn. <laughs> like in a slow turn. Oh my God. Um, I do, I will say that, gosh, I mean, both of these, both of our main suspects are, are, are really good. The Halbrand part of it is interesting. Um, you know, what you were talking about, about um, does he even know that he's Sauron? I think that that, that makes it so much more like emotionally devastating mm-hmm. because you know when when Galadriel is talking to that son of a bitch Theo oh my god uh, who uh, by about... the way Saul did just say what if Theo is Sauron now I had actually I had was... that thought you know <laughs> this, who, has, who has done more damage in this season who is the one who touched the sword and started <laughs> all this <laughs> drama like maybe I... this is young Sauron <laughs> everybody trusts him Sauron everybody's Jr. forgiving him for everything He's, he's very the people are manipulate. You know, he could just show up. He'd be like, "I know Galadriel. I have this sword." Yeah. You know what? I was thinking about these rings might be useful <laughs> to like stop this happening again. Um, but but when Galadriel is talking to him again about that about you know about vengeance, about what a toxic brew vengeance is, it. It speaks to the fact that this felt like a very human, and mm-hmm. she's an elf, but a very a relatable in a human way moment. She understands, and this is a thing that I think everybody does, you understand very well what you're doing wrong in your life, what the yeah. kind of like toxic loops that you get caught in are. At the same time, you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Like she is very, very accurately laying out the path not to follow yeah. while she is walking very aggressively that path of vengeance and has been for hundreds of years for a very long time. Um, And that is just so sad because she's walking almost with her eyes open Mm -hmm. into the trap, if it indeed is that, that that potentially Sauron has laid for her. Yeah, I do. I think that that narratively, like we're both storytellers as well as people who love to read and experience other people's stories. To me, narratively, the absolute heartbreak of every step of the way, her being the one, she took, she forced Sauron to go back to the yes. Southlands where he said he would never go. She forced Sauron to leave Numenor she, where he was happy yes. to be. She's now teamed up with him to take him to the elven, you know, safe hold to get him medical care. And at every point she has forced him into joining her quest, potentially against him. I just think that is... And they did a great job at the beginning. I, I feel like the first couple of episodes, I loved the way they represented Galadriel. But I was like, I hope she's not just like a random like badass, you know. But you actually get yeah. to learn that this is all of her skill and love for her people and everything has kind of been consumed by this unbelievable thirst for vengeance. And so to see that potentially lead to the downfall of her people via Sauron because she was the one who befriended Sauron because she was so desperate to kill him. It's just that narratively is too tasty. It would be if it is indeed that it's too good. Not to mention when when, you know, when he walks out of the out of the medical tent 
uh, and is acclaimed by the, mm-hmm. the survivors of the Southlands, these people who had, you know, a, 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 a not insignificant portion of the population of the Southlands had joined Dar's cause, right? But these are the people who resisted. The, if indeed he is Sauron and is seducing eh. everyone around him, Galadriel, yeah. and, and including these people who resisted the evil of Adar. That is so fucking diabolical. It's so diabolical, especially because these motherfuckers were the ones who had, they, they they sided with Morgoth, you know, and that's why they've yeah. been kind of blacklisted, like exiled, kind of watched over for so so long. It is so... Di- like you said, it's so malevolent and diabolical <laughs> if he managed. And I do think the moment that I truly, I had been a Halbrand cynic about the idea of him being Sauron. Yeah. But th- that moment when he was um, outside and they were like, this is your king. And he was like, oh, yeah, I guess I am. And everyone was just like, sick. I was like, OK, that's a real Sauron move. Like who would just be like, yeah, I love to be king. There's another thing about that, too. And I was wondering why that moment resonated with me in such a weird way. The way he takes a beat and says, mm-hmm. and like kind of looks away and then looks up and says, I am. Yeah. It's a little ominous. And I realized, I don't know if this is on purpose or what, or you're, now I'm just seeing ghosts, but it's a lot like the way Isildur, after cutting off Sauron's ring, grasps it, right? And he's like, and then Elrond is, you know, Isildur, destroy it. And he thinks about it for a second. And he's like, nah. And then he looks up in almost the same way and says, no. And here is Halbrand saying yes, like it's Mm -hmm. the opposite answer. Mm -hmm. But it felt weighty in that very, very same way. And and man, if it's him. It's amazing. I know. It'll be amazing if it's him. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready for the finale. Uh, okay, up next, we're leaving Middle-earth for Westeros and to talk about Episode 7 of House of the Dragon. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. This week in the Hive Mind, where we bring on experts to discuss their work and more, X-ray Vision is thrilled to welcome Aziz, one of the pair behind the History of Westeros podcast and the YouTube channel, helps us unpack everything from House of the Dragon Episode 7, Driftmark. 
So we open up on Driftmark, funeral of Lena Valerian. The family, uh, the whole royal family is there. They're there to pay their respects. Sir Vayman Valerian is intoning the uh, rites in High Valerian. And we see, we get to see uh, some cool backstory on how the, uh, how the Valerian family in particular does their funereal rites. Any, any interesting things pop out to you in, in, this, in this opening scene, Aziz? Well, we got to acknowledge the rudeness of it and the poetry of it. It's pretty moving, and then it gets pointed. It goes from this very well-written, sort of traditional-feeling Valarian funerary rite, and then it starts getting into politics. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Vaymond's quite quite aggressively... uh, Makes some digs, I think, pretty clearly at uh, Jace and Luke and Joffrey, who their uh, who their father might be, implying essentially that they aren't full Valerians. The Valerian blood runs thick, uh, and the implication being that you know Jace, Luke, and Joff are not of that. Uh, really <laughs> interesting, uh, fascinating response from Damon, who just laughs. <laughs> yeah, I saw a really interesting interpretation of that, that he was trying to, it was a good thing. Like he was drawing attention away from everyone staring at Luke and Jace and he to put the focus on himself instead, which, you know, as a guy who likes attention, it's kind of a selfish, yeah. it's like a tool in his arsenal already, but that there's a way to look at it that he was actually being uh, unselfish there. But I, I'm not I, sure. We'll have to ask the character. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I read it. I think you're right. I also read it as, you know, Damon has been itching for a confrontation for many years, you know, particularly with Otto in particular, but of any kind. And it strikes me in, in this episode in which so much of the of the texture of the episode is characters looking at each other warily across the across a crowded room or or surveying the energy in a room and wondering what's about to happen. Uh, it strikes me that Damon, what Damon wants to happen is he wants to see people fight and he wants to be involved in it. And if this is how it happens, that'd be great. I think I think that's perhaps <laughs> what the what the giggle would be. Fighting at a funeral. Why not? <laughs> Rhaenyra uh, goes up to Jace and says, you know, you've got to pay your respects to uh, Bela and Reyna. Uh, and he says, well, what you know, what, uh, shouldn't we be at Herod Hall? Paying our respects to to Harwin Strong, who is a good friend to us. <laughs> a good friend, uh, to us. <laughs> uh, just a very, very great friend, and took such an interest in our lives. And, and Renera very wisely says, "You know, we can't. You know, we can't do that. Uh, that would not be appropriate." Uh, Jace goes over and and does. Uh, it makes a, a a good showing of paying his respects while Queen Alice and King Viserys are, are watching everything. Very, very warily, as we said, Prince Aegon mm-hmm. and Aemond, uh watch their sister, Princess Helena, play with spiders, and she's <laughs> speaking about dragons. And we know certainly from things that happen later on in this episode that we should just pay attention to everything that she says. Oh, yeah. uh, she says something to the effect of dragons of flesh breeding uh, dragons of thread. Uh, did you read anything in particular into this? Well, there's a couple of things I think that we can maybe get from it. One, she says, hand turns, loom, spool of green, hand turns, loom, spool of black. I wonder if that's a reference to the changing of the hand of the king mm. um, and, their, and their relative allegiances. And as well, we get later in the episode, 
two very noticeable stitchings of flesh, thread into flesh as the eye is torn out or cut. And then as Rhaenyra's arm is slashed open and it was very graphic, we see both of the yeah. stitchings. Well, we don't see the stitching of the eye when it happens, but we see it afterwards in plain sight many times. And then we see actually see Rhaenyra getting stitched up. And it's it's not pleasant, but I think it connects very strongly to what Helena was saying. So uh, it's not like some big major prediction like claiming the dragon was. That was pretty major. But I think it's telling us this character could see the future. (laughs) And uh, yeah, in metaphor, at least. I wonder if at any point. You know, Alicent or Aegon, Aegon does not seem to be a particularly uh, present uh, person. He drinks heroically throughout this episode and then he's <laughs> not there for uh, the shit going down. But Aemon is, is a sharp character. Otto certainly very uh, sharp. I, I do wonder. And of course, Viserys is primed to think about prophecy, it has a, a very um, a very close relationship with dreams and prophecy. I I wonder if at any point somebody notices these things that Helena yeah. says. It says, "Oh, whoa, whoa, what's this? We we need to pay attention to this." I was hoping um, Viserys would. I mean, he's the I one. I was hoping that's he would. About yeah. Dreams, right? Mm. Yeah. So far, nothing. Uh, Sir Kristen Cole notices that uh, Lord Larry Strong has just been openly <laughs> staring at Alice <laughs> <laughs> for the entire party. Uh, Alice yeah. says it's only a look of pride, Sir Kristen. Of course, uh, Laris is the new Lord of Harrenhal, which raises an interesting question. Jace says, you know, why couldn't we be at Harrenhal? Pay our respects to Harwin Strong and and the late the Lord Lionel. Why is why is Laris here? Why should Laris be there? <laughs> yeah, we were wondering about that too. Is yeah. that it was Jace being a little more euphemistic, like they're not literally having the funerals at the same right. time, or he's just because he's mad that they're not going to that one whenever it was or is going to be. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that is a little a little confusing. It's not a difficult thing to explain, but it's not. It is also a little. Uh, <laughs> it begs the question for sure. But you're right. I mean, that dude really is staring at Allison. There yeah, is just some, at, flat out staring. There is some little finger Sansa Catelyn vibes going on there. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. We talked about this when uh, I came on. I guess on your podcast over the over the weekend, and it's yeah. something we've talked about on this show quite a bit. Is you know the, the in the books. The uh, the various fictional historians are always debating what's the what are the motivations of Laris? What does Laris want? You know, it now I think if you if you take that out of it, for me at least, just looking at some of the things Laris does without spoiling, you know, future events, it seems to me that he's a pretty unambiguous supporter of the Greens. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering if you what do you sense as a motivation for him? I, I, you mentioned Littlefinger, Sansa. It does feel like that, right? Like there is some sort of an attraction or something. Yeah, like it, it's presented much differently than Littlefinger, but I think it may amount to a similar human emotion, which is that he lives in a society where with his uh, foot and what that does for his station, even though yeah. he's highborn, it pushes him to the fringes of society. And that, uh, can breed uh, envy or feeling like you aren't treated as an equal and should be, and you know, like puts a chip on your shoulder potentially. And it's that's why it's similar energy to Littlefinger because he was actually much lower born than than Larry Strong is, but doesn't have this uh, doesn't have you know a, a disfigured foot. 
Yeah. Um, but he still wants to be worthy of this ideal woman that he thinks he deserves, in fact. I think yeah. it's, it's it's that level of obsession. And I'm not sure if Laris's is that strong, but I think for the first time we get the vibe that it might be with that comment from yeah. Kristen, who points out that he's just staring at her so much. And of course, Kristen's probably got a little crush of his own going on there. So mm-hmm. he's partic- he's sensitive to it <laughs> as well. So I got to like balance all these different uh, obsessions. <laughs> and Allison's just got to try to keep them all like, all right, you all just... Yeah. Remember who's in charge here. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I should note uh, this is an audio medium, but you are wearing a uh, a Allison uh, shirt uh, with That's the right. high tower uh, showing green flame atop of it. The banner is being called. <laughs> here we get some really interesting uh, small conversations. Uh, Corliss is speaking to Luke about his future birthright of, of Driftmark and Luke in, in a very wrenching scene says, you know, I don't want it. That that would mean everybody's dead. I I, I really don't want it. Uh, and, you, and you realize the intense pressure that is being put on these young people. Um, we see yeah. uh, uh, Viserys and his brother Damon and this kind of like attempt at a reproachment, at which point, you know, uh, Damon really strongly, really emotionally is like, no, I don't. I don't want to place at your court. I don't need anything from you. It seems like he's going to say something else, uh, but then he walks away. And as he's walking away, uh, uh, Otto Hightower tries to pay his respects for the, uh, you know, for Damon uh, losing his his wife Lena, and uh, Damon calls Otto a leech. And says, just straight you know, to the, his face. <laughs> yeah, straight to his face is like you know the interesting thing about leeches is no matter how fat they get, they just keep on. Keep on sucking. <laughs> uh, and Rhaenyra, again, who is, who is, you know, has fled King's Landing in recent years for Dragonstone because of these kind of tensions that are just under the surface, has been watching everything warily. Uh, and she begins to sense uh, trouble and so sends her boys to bed, uh, but also sensing an opportunity. Here's Damon walking off alone and there's clearly something that Rhaenyra wants to talk to Damon about. King also goes to bed. Here's an interesting moment. I, w- I wonder what you think of this. So uh, Lord Commander uh, Westerling, uh, as he's taking the king to bed, says, now, do you want me to watch the queen? I read this as Westerling clearly knows that Kristen Cole and the queen are close. And he's thinking, you know what, maybe too close for uh, for the job. Yeah, I think that might have been implied. I think Westerling is more proper. He's more like a old school knight, I guess you could yeah. say. And he also hews more traditionally to the, the tenets of the job. You'll notice that when when things really f- break down in the in the dagger scene later, he yeah. yells, "Stay to the, you know, stick to the king!" Like people are going yeah. all over the place. That's why people were wondering why the king's guard didn't intervene. Well, their first job is to protect the king, so Harold just stays with him, even though all sorts of other stuff is happening. So I think it's kind of similar energy here. He's yeah, the they're supposed to protect the king and his family, but they're also supposed to protect them from themselves. And so if Alicent were to do something with Cole, which it's not Rainier and Cole. It's not the same kind of situation, but he doesn't right. know that. Westerling doesn't yeah. know that. He's just like, let's not take any chances. So, yeah, I think that he's 
being a good Kingsguard there. It's as much as he can do. All he can do is ask. It's not like he can just yeah make the call himself. <laughs> so, um, but it's a really great way to communicate that subtly to the audience as well that that he knows. And so, if he knows or suspects, then we're supposed to as well. Confirms that maybe suspicion people already had. Yeah. yeah, there's a couple of people that are that see Allison as maybe more than their queen. Um, <laughs> and especially I mean, Viserys, maybe they, they see Viserys on his way out and they're like, well, yeah. you're going to want to have someone even closer when he's gone and that's going to be soon. So, yeah, there's there's some interesting uh, yeah, things going on. Cer- certainly if Westerling has those concerns, then people are talking about it in the castle. Ladies mm-hmm. in waiting, various courtiers. This would be a thing that people would be talking about. Uh, yeah, what's the deal, right. with, what's the deal sure, with Chris yeah. and Cole and Allison? Yeah, you know, what's you know what's the deal with Chris and Cole and the Queen? That would be something people would talk about. Um, we see uh, that Aegon uh, <laughs> loves to drink. Not a not a great uh, display from the boy <laughs> who would like to be king, and certainly whose family would no, would like him to be elevated to king. It's not a great showing. Uh, uh, meanwhile, his uh, brother Aemond is roused by the. Vagar's dragon song and and uh, stalks off somewhere to to go seek the dragon out. That night in Driftmark's hall, Rhaenys and Corlys have a have a really interesting argument in which, you know, essentially, uh, Rhaenys says, "You know that uh, that Laenor and Rhaenyra's sons, air quotes." Are not <laughs> Lanors. You know that we're, we can. We're alone. We can talk about it. So what I what, what I would like you to do is to declare here while everybody's here, declare that Driftmark will go to the girls, um, and they have a big argument about it. Uh, you can see that Corliss, much like Viserys, knows that this is true, but just has decided that that the boys are laners. He's just decided that he's going to act like that. He's completely committed to it, even though he does know the truth. And he essentially says, you know, uh, uh, the history does not, it doesn't care about blood. It cares about names. And and I would argue that he's probably right. Uh, What what did you think about this? I I really like the framing of this debate because they both have opinions that reflect where they came from. He's a Valarian who was not the firstborn, and he talks very early on in the show about how he made his own way in the world. To him, merit matters more. Like, what you have, what you've gained, what you've earned matters more. It doesn't matter where you came from as much. Now, of course, he's still super highborn, but compared to a Targaryen, he's not. Meanwhile, Rhaenys, she comes from a family where your actual blood does matter because of dragons and stuff like that. So they actually do really care about that. So they were both raised in these traditions or at least developed these attitudes somewhat on their own with the backing of the tradition they came from. So I thought that was really neat that they fall out a bit on those particular differences and how well that was set up. Uh, I do think that um, Corlys's point is pretty strong it's the same as Viserys's look yeah right. it's weird to deny the obvious here but to not deny it is civil war and right. we've already saw before the scene that Corlys was clearly on this track because he was talking to Luke and saying you know this is going to be yours one day he didn't seem to put any have any doubt like he wasn't yeah. he wasn't insulting like his brother or uh, this isn't as insulting because Rhaenys is saying this behind closed doors but she clearly has she was also just sh- kind of shunning 
Jace there. She came over yeah. to hug her granddaughters and kind of just like didn't kind of gave him the cold shoulder. So that was that was pretty rough. Um, not as blatant as the eulogy, but very, very noticeable. Very uh, as far as the kid goes. It, yeah, it hits him just as hard, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and you know, to, to Corliss's point, I think. History remembers the feats that were performed by a particular person, the, the history that surrounded that person, not necessarily what their what their bloodline is. I, you know, for people like us in this story, like we care who Aegon the Conqueror's father was because we're birds <laughs> yeah. about this stuff, right? But mostly yeah. people don't. Like mostly people don't. And I think in the realm, I, I think Corliss has something of a point. Nobody's really going to care. They're going to care what they do. These rumors will be around, of course. But they will care about what Jace does yeah. uh, w- when he reaches the They'll care about what Rhaenyra does uh, when they ascend to the throne. Elsewhere, Rhaenyra and Damon go for a little walk. She is very open uh, with Damon about her relationship with Laenor and uh, that it was, you know, a political marriage, but that they've made the best of it. They tried to have kids. It didn't work out. Uh, she admits that she had a relationship with with Lord Harwin Strong and that they were in love. It's very clear from that, mm-hmm. uh, this conversation, that they, they care deeply for each other. Um, she wonders about the curse of Herod Hall, whether it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so do we all. <laughs> so do we all. <laughs> uh, and, and Damon, Damon, you know, thinks this is all nonsense. He said, you know, it's a ghost story. Of course, Serato and the Queen would would love for you to believe that Heron Hall is is cursed. And then she she says, no, I, I don't think Allison would actually just flat out murder somebody. Would she do that? Now, she, <laughs> I, she would not. It, she would not at this stage order a flat out murder. But but clearly people around here would. What do you think about the, the is Heron Hall cursed? I think it's just like a string of bad luck. I think, yeah, I don't think you know, it's cursed, I, but I think it's pretty neat to think about the way the the way it's built implies mm-hmm. that, like the types of things said about it, like the big fires and the huge shadows. I mean, it's a giant yeah. place. Like you take yeah. a huge room with a giant fireplace, it's going to cast giant shadows, right? Yeah. <laughs> and in such a huge place, like how can you keep track of everything that's happening? So like a little f- look, we look around at these castles. There's like stuff on the ground all over the place, yeah. flammable stuff everywhere. I mean the in a castle that's so big, I can imagine a fire starting and no one notices it for an hour <laughs> because the place is so yeah. huge. And <laughs> it's like, you smell smoke. Ah. Yeah, where's that coming from? And they, they actually smell it. It <laughs> takes them another hour to find where it's actually happening. So, yeah, but it, but I love that, that it's the core of something George R. R. Martin loves to do is imply the possibility yeah. of supernatural and not closing the door on it, but also giving you a pretty rational explanation or a series of rational explanations. Yeah. So, so in world, people are going to tend to believe it's cursed. So we have to kind of accept that a lot of them actually believe that, even yeah. d- regardless of what we think. And uh, yeah, but that was a great take that you you had there because Laris is exactly he predicted that people would interpret it this way mm-hmm. and that would provide a great smoke screen hey where there's smoke there's fire right that works yeah and uh it he was right i mean guy thought it through evil man got his way rhaenyra is as the conversation continues rhaenyra says how mad she is at, at damon for essentially abandoning her and you get it right because mm. uh, Lenor was an ally and a good one uh 
and they have some they have a wonderful moment later on in this episode before the the big shocking reveal but she could have really used some backup in King's Landing during those <laughs> early years and really didn't have anything Viserys was you know you get the feeling that Viserys kind of named her heir and then stood back and was like okay go ahead uh clearly Kristen Cole is against her uh was she was not able to make any other inroads with any other members of the King's Guard uh whatever Harwin Strong's uh, relationship with members of the City Watch it didn't seem like that was transferable to Rhaenyra and so you kind of understand how she feels uh in this moment uh and then they get together uh, and this feels it feels like it's a long time coming. And certainly Damon, you get the sense that uh, Damon, who we've seen just kind of do things for the thrill of doing them, seems actually quite, quite hesitant because in, in my read on it is that he's got legitimate feelings for Rhaenyra. I agree. Yeah, I think they have always had feelings for each other, even when they were younger and even when it was... Not not age appropriate, although I don't know if they yeah. would recognize it that way in this right. world. But but we certainly see it that way. Yeah. And, and and his own reaction, you know, he couldn't he had his dysfunction that sort of implies he knew it was wrong behind the scenes. They yeah. said that that was a big issue for him, even though he wanted yeah. it. He knew it was wrong. So now it's it's not wrong anymore uh, from that perspective. And the, they can't deny the attraction. There's that for very first scene in the very first episode where they meet. It's the first time we see him. He gives her the necklace. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a little more than family going on in that moment. The way it's framed, we're supposed to see a little more than just, hey, you're my uncle. <laughs> you know, we're like, mm, there's a little more yeah. going on here. And yeah, so it comes to a, comes to fruition here. And all of and there's no mention of his him having any trouble with his dysfunction here. That seems to be long in the past. Uh, but it's really interesting how the two sides align on on this, their ideals and the way they frame their their own goals as a faction. For example, the Greens are more about ideals. Even though yeah. they don't necessarily adhere to the ideals, that's their right. It's marketing. the image of it's the image yeah. of the ideals. This uh, nobility yeah. and sacrifice and honor and uh, yes, we're committing murders behind the scenes, but <laughs> it's all because it's important to believe in honor and duty and sacrifice. Yada yada yada. Yeah, that's what they're pushing. We know that they're hypocrites about some of it, and meanwhile, the blacks, you know, they're not. They're by no means perfect either. Yeah. But uh, and they're. She's openly saying, hey, I need you because you're because you're capable of yeah. depravity. It, it's it's pretty genius because she's like, Lenor comes around. She thinks of Lenor as decent and honorable. And she's like, yeah, but that's not what I need right now. I need under right, I, need, I the, need dirty. I need a I killer. I need the bad guy. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. need the bad guy. I need the I need the guy who will commit murders uh, without any evidence being able to be linked back to the person who committed the murders, but for people to suspect that this person is capable of committing these murders. And certainly Damon, as we've seen, his ability to move throughout the Red Keep unseen, his, his ability to move throughout the city unseen, despite being a very famous person. Uh, he is someone who various powerful figures are very concerned about. Otto certainly has always been worried about what Damon is capable of. So it's an interesting yeah. it's it's an interesting team up and and also I think what's what's cool about it is even though you know various figures have suspected Damon of wanting to seize power for himself 
and and you know certainly you know his petulance at not being named heir early on it, it could is certainly easy to read that way but damon you get you get the very very strong sense that damon is is quite happy to be the king consort in this relationship he yes. just wants to be close to his family and to defend it and to kill the enemies of yeah. his family, he's not. He's not interested in the day to day managerial things associated with ruling a realm. Yeah, I thought it was really brilliant the way they framed it. Viserys says, "Hey, come home. You know, if we got everything you need." He's like, "I don't need anything." You know, that was yeah. the wrong way to talk to that man. But then when Rhaenyra approaches him, she's like, "I need you." That yeah. was the cor- that was the correct way. That was to the way to do him. it. That was the way to approach it. And it worked right. perfectly. So she, and that's partly because they're more alike. Like, yeah, it, it came out in a different way earlier in episode four, maybe when Viserys and Damon were talking about their parents, and he's like, "Oh, your mom liked you best. Mom liked you best." Right. And it was because they were more similar, and she was. If you look at the histories, their mother was like kind of wilder and and aggressive and and outspoken, not at all like Viserys, but but quite a bit like Damon. Yeah, so it fits there. They know each other better because they're more alike. Meanwhile, across the beach, uh, Aemond, Aemond, soon to be one eye, claims Vagar. Uh, a huge, <laughs> huge win for the Greens. Uh, uh, Bela and Reyna are shocked. For some reason, they wake up Jace, which, w- why are you waking up Jace? Yeah, <laughs> go, why not wake up an adult? Yeah, <laughs> go wake up. Go, <laughs> you know what I mean? Go get Corliss. Go get go the Kingsguard. Someone, yeah, yeah. Go get a Kingsguard guardsman. Or, or yeah, Corliss, go, good idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't get Jace. <laughs> What's Jace gonna do? But anyway, they wake up Jace and Luke, and they all go to confront Amond. Uh, Amond is completely unapologetic. Honestly, it, it's a dick move, but as he should, he should not feel like bad about this. Like I, I agree with him in that. If you were going to claim Vagar, Bela, then you should have claimed the dragon. You should have just done it. A fight breaks out after uh, Aemon makes an unkind uh, uh, reference back to uh, the pig that yeah. uh, uh, was foisted upon him by his brother Aegon and, of course, Jason Luke as a, as a kind of practical joke. And in this fight, as this fight comes to a close, first of all, you get this really – ominous moment where it seems as if Aemond is going to crush Luke's fucking skull with a rock. Like, he might do it. And I think the only thing that stays... Uh, you know, kinslaying, it's its a thing that I think book reader, people who haven't read the books might not, it, it, it might be hard to grasp, but kinslaying is such a strong taboo in this world. Really you is. just wouldn't, it, it, you just wouldn't do it. People ask all the time, why, why wouldn't... Um, why wouldn't Damon do this, that, and the other to kind of push Viserys out of the way? And it's like to do that publicly in a way where your hand – you just wouldn't do it. It wouldn't be done. It, 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 even if there's an element of hatred between brothers or family members, it's just not done and it's certainly not done in a public way. Um, and so we get this moment where Aemon – it seems like Aemon might actually kill Luke uh, and then Jace gets free some sand gets thrown into Amon's eye, and next thing you know, Luke has cut out uh, Amon's eye. It was kind of, kind of shitty to bring a knife to a regular kid fight, uh, oh, yeah. but uh, this is clearly 
one of the greatest failures of the Kingsguard, maybe in its history. So, like, it's certainly <laughs> to this point in its history. Sir, uh, Sir Westlerin comes up. Uh, Sir Harold, and he is aghast. Remember, in, uh, people will recall in episode one when uh, Rhaenyra has just landed uh, Syrax and she's back in the dragon pit. And uh, and Sir Harold is like, says something to the effect of, well, I'm glad that you're back because if you didn't, if something had happened, that's my head on a spike. <laughs> Certainly in this moment, Sir Harold is thinking, fuck, like... <laughs> This is my I could fault. get, yeah, this is uh, where, where, I mean, where is the King's guard? This is a question that is yeah. about to be asked because the King is super pissed. It is an immense failure by the King's guard. Uh, Kristen Cole, who you have to, uh, you have to point out is getting, has been a little, has forgotten himself a little <laughs> bit in recent days, snaps at the King, says, well, the King's guard has never been, uh, has never had to defend princes from princes. I'm not so sure that that's the case, but talking back to the king like this is is pretty shocking. Wrong the answer. Tells, yeah. uh, wrong answer. <laughs> the maester tells Alicent that Aemon's certainly the, the eye is lost. Um, she slaps Aegon for not being around, which again, what was Aegon supposed to? What was Aegon supposed to? Do? This is a King's Guard issue. Yeah. Uh, Corlys arrives. Then Rhaenyra. <laughs> yeah, don't blame her for this one. Corlys <laughs> arrives. Then Rhaenyra arrives. Then Daemon, who again. You get the sense from Damon that he's like, oh, good, it's happening. This is what, yeah. good. The fighting is going to start. Great. This is what we've been waiting for. We've been waiting years for this. Finally, it's going to happen. Um, Otto certainly is looking around like, okay, depending on how this was going to go, this is either very, very good for me or very bad. Uh, and then the king demands to know, what, okay, what happened here? Princess Rhaenyra tells the king that Aemon called Jason Luke Bastards and Joffrey, who isn't there, but the three boys, Bastards. Now, Rhaenyra, in what I consider to be basically the first shot in the war, says, I want Aemon to question sharply. Basically, I want <laughs> you to torture. I want you to say to the, uh, to the king's justice, go ahead and torture my son to find out where he got these treasonous ideas. Now, I don't know if Viserys, there's almost, there's no chance that Viserys would ever agree to that. But it's quite a move, isn't it, to sit to say, "I want you to, I want you to torture a prince of the blood and find out where he f heard this." Yeah, it is. It's it's a she mostly is under control in this scene, but that I think was yeah. going too far. Though it may have you maybe could see it as a negotiating tactic. She knows that they're gonna be some sort of reckoning for what her son has did. So maybe she's trying to say, well, look at how wrong this is. We could maybe compromise right. somewhere on all this. Uh, so she may have been trying to throw that out as, as a shield for Luke. And that's a really important part of this. Yeah, for sure. And I think that what's so interesting about this is the kids are all fighting and we're supposed to recognize that kids aren't supposed to fight like that. They're not supposed to right. beat each other that hard and grab each other by the neck and especially not cut out eyes. And, but it's all based on what they're taught. These kids are yeah. totally behaving the way their parents have taught them. To take an insult about their yeah. parentage is supposed to be that serious, according to what they're taught. So this all goes to maybe the point of how it's foreshadowing what these kids will do when they're adults. I mean, they're all yeah. uh, picking up 
what this, these kids should be fighting over toys and they're fighting over the literally the largest dragon in the world. <laughs> so that's, if that isn't ominous, I don't, yeah, I don't know what else would be. <laughs> and, and you could feel, you could feel the moment, especially when, when Rhaenyra brings potential treason into it, you could feel the moment kind of on a knife's edge. Otto kind of comes to his tippy toes. Everybody starts looking around because it feels like that moment where if Viserys is in the right mood and he hears the wrong thing, maybe he decides to actually follow through with his long uh, threatened punishment of pulling out some tongues, which he's he's never been that type of person, but maybe he does it for once. Maybe uh, we realize that Otto has been uh, putting these kind of treasonous ideas into the minds of his grandchildren. Maybe we find out that that Alicent has been involved in it. Uh, and so it's a very dangerous moment for the Greens. Um, Viserys, however, is just like, all right, that's enough. Everybody go to bed. You know that it's, <laughs> it's not a good look for the king. And I think it's very indicative of how little, how weak Viserys is right now, both in terms of how how he exercises his kingly authority and how everybody is just waiting for him to die. They are waiting like a starter's pistol. They're all at the, <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the line and they're waiting for him to pass away and that will be the starter's pistol and then they will start running because... Viserys says like three or four times, everybody go to bed. This internal infighting must cease all of you. Everybody stop. Okay, that's enough. And and you when you have to, if you're the king and you have to say that three and four times, there's a problem. Everything it seems as if, okay, Viserys has basically ordered this to to cease and, and to be squashed and okay, we're we're moving on, but no. Alicent is furious that we're just going to walk away from this issue. Her son has lost his eye. He's been he was set upon by uh, four other children. Uh, this is insane. She wants blood. She wants an eye for an eye. Uh, she asks the king I, an eye for an eye. That would be fair. The king is absolutely shocked that this would even be asked. He says, like, you for, you need to not let your emotions get the better of you. What are you doing? Then she does something which I think is. Uh, clearly an overreach. I think that's <laughs> understating it. She yeah. says to Kristen Cole, bring me the eye of Lucerus Valerion. Here again, Sir Harold Westerling looks at Cole like... What are you going to do, man? He's not sure <laughs> if he's going to do it. And Cole, to his credit, I guess, says, you know, I am sworn to you, but as your protector. But he says it extremely hesitatingly. You know, you get the feeling that if everybody was not here, certainly. I'll cut the kid's eye out. No problem. I've been waiting to do this. <laughs> Maybe. It was a clever answer, yeah. yeah. And I really appreciate that. Again, like you said, Harold's look over at him, like, what? how's he going to react? Even he doesn't know what he's going to do. And I think he kind of approved of, of that answer. It was very diplomatic. But Allison just won't let it go. Because from her perspective, it is... Yeah, it's un from uh, from everyone's perspective. Even it should be from hers as well that taking yeah. her husband's grandchild's eye out as a response is not rational or reasonable, even if he did commit that crime, which he did. But he wasn't punished at all. <laughs> like there was, was nothing. Yeah, 
Yeah. Luke got away completely with it. And, you know, I'm not taking sides at all here because I think, like I said, I think it's the, the parents are at fault here for the for what yeah. these kids did. They're, they're, this is the way they were raised. If you want to put blame it on anyone, blame it on the parents, including Allison, including Rainier, all of them, like, and Viserys as well, because like you said, they're just waiting for him to die or they know that's the, it's like the weather vein. It's like, well, eventually it's yeah. going to point a certain direction. The only thing keeping them from fighting is him still being alive and they can all see how flimsy that is. What, what was, uh, Lionel Strong said this flimsy shield yeah. is the only thing keeping that. He's like, yeah, and that flimsy shield is getting flimsier by the day. Uh, th- this guy is not going to live to old age, like Otto said. So it's really frustrating this from, like, if you're a subject of Viserys, is like, yeah, Viserys, you've got the right idea if they, preventing war, yeah, prevent civil war, that's, that is the most important thing. But he doesn't do anything other than demand it. He's like, don't fight. Yeah. <laughs> like, how about you do something to prevent fighting? But then it wouldn't be as interesting, I guess. <laughs> it would not be as interesting. But, it, you know, it's, I keep thinking about this, you know. If Viserys would have followed through with, you know, pulling a couple of tongues out, maybe throwing a couple of people in the dungeon, you know, uh, maybe a couple Overriding of hands get his wife off. when, yeah, when yeah. about the marriage thing. Like, no, he's like, no, we're doing this marriage. We're marrying Helena to Jace. I don't care what you think, you know. Like I don't like care that, what maybe. you think. Yeah, like that was a great deal. What happened to that? That was, there's a dragon egg thrown in. Like, that's a sweet deal. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the king was for it. And that just kind of went away. And the king was happy to let it slip away. So Kristen Cole uh, refuses the queen's call. So the queen snatches Aegon's dagger out of Viserys's hilt and crosses the room. Rhaenyra steps in front of her son, grabs the queen's uh, wrist, and they have this showdown. You mentioned it where, the, where Sir Harold has to say, stay with the king because the king's guard, they've had a rough night, but here's a moment where you're just not sure what to do. Uh, The queen has a knife. She's coming at the crown heir. Uh, There's various princes of the blood all around. (laughs) (laughs) What do we do? Stay with the king. Um, And then Damon comes in and body blocks Sir Cole, makes sure that he can't come to the rescue of the queen. And and Damon, you can sense the enjoyment that he got out of that. and then Rhaenyra says, exhausting, wasn't it? Hiding beneath the cloak of your own righteousness, but now Oof. they see you as you are. Alicent wrenches her hand out of Rhaenyra's grip and cuts Rhaenyra's arm in the process. Everyone freezes. This seems to bring everybody to, to, to uh, uh, you know, back to sobriety. You know, I think everyone's yeah. blood had gone up and now – now that blood has actually been drawn and it's the and it's royal blood of the of the king's heir, this is a very serious thing, uh, and this could go depending on the the ruler. It could go a lot of different, very very serious ways. But it's Viserys, so he essentially is going to let it go. But still, everybody kind of comes to their senses, and then Aemond puts the period on it. Do not mourn me, mother. It was a fair exchange. I may have lost an eye, but I gained a dragon. He's absolutely right. He's gained the biggest, baddest dragon in the land. The king, for the millionth time, says these proceedings are at an end. (laughs) 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 And everybody goes to sleep, finally. His go-to move. We're done. We're over. It's stopped. Uh, (laughs) That's it. Enough. Go to bed. He hits the eject button. Otto, uh, later on... uh, Queen Alicent is beside herself. She let herself get, you know, way, way too emotional. Uh, She has been throughout this series the kind of picture of dignity and 
you mentioned the way how important this image of honor and dignity and sacrifice is to her. And certainly that's what she's always looking to present. She's from the time she was a child been groomed to be the perfect lady, the perfect royal lady and now the perfect queen. And she's trying to be that. And here she has failed. But Otto is shockingly psyched. He's like, great. That was <laughs> that was awesome. I've been waiting to see if you had that in you. Uh, of course, Otto has long been preaching that there's a war coming, and now he sees that his daughter is a fighter. And not only yeah. that, they won Vagar to their side. He says, you know, what, what that rogue Amond has done winning Vagar to our side, the boy was right, it's worth a thousand times the price he paid. Rogue seemed a wonderful little uh, uh, wink uh, at the books, yeah, did it not? Yeah, totally, totally rogue prince, especially because Damon and Aemon have increasingly more and more in common with each other. Yeah. And we'll see more of that later, I suppose. But yeah, there's that vibe. They're both the second born. They got this chip on their shoulder. They Now they both have dragons. Yeah, especially particularly notable dragons. Yeah, I love that. They're, they've been very good at that. For some reason, Otto is, is frequently the vehicle for yeah. <laughs> these not it's odd of all characters like he's the one who dropped that line of signs and portents and he yeah. he uh there was at least a couple other ones oh yeah he, he said we'd pay this price a thousand times over the thousand yeah. eyes in one line so yeah. uh yeah and he's right though i mean they got vagar he's got his it's eye right. on he's right he's looking ahead he's like yeah you screwed up by losing your temper so that's a loss but we gained vagar and we gained in his mind we gained you yeah. fully committed whereas you weren't before so that's two wins and one loss in his mind and he and to his to his bottom line people looking at her as mad or wrong won't matter if they win if they're if they're if she's queen at the end and they defeat the blacks it won't matter that they said those that's things right. about her so to him she's right that she screwed up but he said in the scheme of things these other factors are much bigger and it's interesting to look at it from his perspective because at first his reaction is a little surprising he's like actually daughter we came out pretty well here <laughs> you're like wait what and then he explains yeah. it you're like okay actually i kind of see where you're coming from don't fully agree but i, I get it <laughs> lenor returns from being drunk with carl somewhere uh and he finds his his wife getting stitched up uh he's like what happened what happened uh, I should have been there, he says, and Rhaenyra, it, very cutting, says, those should be our house words, and they have a heart-to-heart. <laughs> they have a really warm heart-to-heart, actually, where they talk very openly about their relationship, what it was built on, this attempt to, in Lenore's words, pursue happiness, but also uphold the responsibilities placed on them by the realm, and, and clearly those two things can't coexist all the time, and Lenore says, I'm going to rededicate myself to supporting you, to being a father, to Jace, Luke, and Joffrey, to uh, to making sure that you are the best ruler that you can be, that you ascend to the throne. Um, and, in, and in a really wrenching moment, he says, you know, he's they're talking about their inability to, to produce an heir, to produce children. And he says, I hate the gods for making me as they did. And Rhaenyra in, very generously is like, no, I, I don't agree with that. Uh, you're you're an honorable man with a good heart. That is a vanishingly rare thing in this realm, which is true. Um, yeah. And no it doubt. seems as if at the end of this conversation that Lenore is going to put aside Carl and just be the very image and substance of the future king consort. Meanwhile, Alicent is uh, taking the king back 
to the to the royal flagship. She's on her best behavior. She's like, do you want some wine? Are you cold? Can I tuck you in? I'm so sorry about what happened. <laughs> uh, he's like, I don't want to talk about care. this shit anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't call that. He's like, oh, he'll just forgive you. Yeah, he'll, yeah. he'll forget about it. Yeah, what's he, what, what can he do? He'll forget about it. She's um, like, well, that was that was easy. <laughs> um. Uh, meanwhile, Rhaenyra and and Damon now have have met up again as the royal party is is leaving Driftmark. Uh, they begin talking about you know the fire and the sea and these various ideas that animate House Targaryen. Meanwhile, on the ship, uh, Laris comes to the queen and is like, "Listen, if you ever need that eye, I got you." <laughs> I'll get that nice. I'll get that eye for you. And and you can see that Alicent is extremely wary of of now Lord Laris. But also she says, okay, not now, but maybe later. Like let's keep let's put a pin in that for now, but maybe I will maybe I will need you. Um that's feels like it's gonna be very important in days to come. Um and then yeah, Rainier yeah, and Damon sure. cement their alliance uh according to the uh the the ancient Valerian marriage rites. Uh, these are, I think, clearly like a dragon rider uh, rites in order to keep the blood pure. Um, and what a monumental uh, weekend on Driftmark, folks. Uh, we go from a funeral to a wedding. Uh, Corlys and, and, and Rhaenys, there's no way that they're going to be happy about this, but uh, this is what happened. Yeah, that is what happened. They still have their family on on that side. I really wonder about this tightrope walk of we want people to think we did it, but I don't know if but, they want those people to yeah. think they did it. That's their kid, right? Or or maybe it's possible they let them in on the secret, but I don't know. I wonder, I know. you know, like uh, I, I just want to shout out for a moment. I did this on the official pod, but also I just want to because we'll never talk about this uh, red shirt Valerian guardsman again, <laughs> but uh, but a rip to him. He was just yeah. trying to do his job. He had just, you know, did punched in, you know, a regular old night just doing the rounds at, yeah. <laughs> at, uh, at Driftmark, making sure everything was safe and sound. And he gets his fucking neck snapped and thrown into a fire as a <laughs> fake body in order to cover for the fake murder of, of Lanor Valerian, who, of course, we see rowing away to Essos with Carl. He, he pulls down his hood and his head is shaved. Um, and I got to tell you, this was... My jaw dropped when I saw this. I, I obviously the books are. <laughs> I did not see it coming. Obviously, the books are fictional history, so the historians get stuff wrong, right? You know, if people are sneaky enough, there's going to be things that the, the historians never get. Um, and, but this is not one of the things that I would have expected to happen. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. Totally, totally caught off guard by this one. It was it was surprising for a lot of reasons. But yeah, I do feel for that guard. I mean, what are they going to think about him after? Because he's missing now. Yeah, where'd he go? Yeah, where is he? The he? They're <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. he's he, he's ran off with Carl. He's part of, yeah. he's part of the one. He was one of the murderers. So. Oh, perfect. Whoops. Yeah. Yeah. And then they yell. He yells. How could you let this happen? It's like, well, there was a guard that was <laughs> killed, I guess. That's part of what happened. <laughs> the guy who would have noticed was sort of uh, accounted for by the murderers there. Yeah. Um, very surprising. Uh, you, and you wonder whether there, whether he's truly gone. Is this riding off into the moonrise? Right. Or is he going to be killed off screen so they can manage other things? Or 
It's also kind of funny, ironic, given what Luke said. He's like, for me to become Lord of Driftmark, everyone has to die. He's like, well, actually, here's one way <laughs> yeah, around right? that. But you're going to have to think he's dead. So you're yep. still suffering the same way. So I know the kids weren't let in on the secret. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, I'm so excited to have you here because, you know, uh, you're always your podcast, uh, History of Westeros, is always the one I turn to when I just want to, like, super, super, super nerd out on book lore mm-hmm. and stuff. Oh, thanks. Uh, and so it's uh, delightful to have you here to get into the Q&A with Ask the Maester. Dragons have arrived on HBO Max. Have you heard about this show, House of the Dragon, folks? Are you aware of this show that's now going into its eighth episode? New, The new HBO original series, House of the Dragon, is a prequel set 200 years before the events of Game of Thrones. House of the Dragon tells the story of how Targaryen locked in an epic battle for the Iron Throne and power over the Seven Kingdoms. The epic series promises more drama and betrayal than ever. Listen to the official Game of Thrones podcast, House of the Dragon, on HBO Max, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts and to celebrate... We're going back to the Citadel to answer your questions. Help today by Aziz from the History of Westeros podcast. Uh, very excited. Let's start uh, with, I think, something that's going to be present in a lot of people's minds. It certainly was it was a question that, that I started heavily researching as soon as I watched this episode. Um, John asks, and many people asked, so with Lenor out of the picture but alive, I'm wondering about his bond with Sea Smoke. Is Sea Smoke, quote unquote, available now? for a person to bond with? Um, this is a great question. Uh, and st- uh, not a lot of evidence for what happens when a dragon rider g- leaves but doesn't die. What happens to the bond? Uh, a- any thoughts on this? Yeah, you're right. We have no prior examples of this in the books. So it is uncharted territory. I imagine the show is going to make a call since they don't have right. anything from George to fall back on unless they asked George and they and he gave them an answer. But I mean, even a loyal dog will eventually move on. It might take yeah. years, but I've always felt like that's the best metaphor because I think the skin changer bond is a little too supernatural, even though dragons right. sometimes seem to know things that are not directly communicated, like where to breathe your fire when they say Drakari. Right. Like there's, there's always options, but they always seem to yeah. know what's intended of them, which a lot of dogs do as well. They, they seem yeah. to vibe with their owners really well. So I think that maybe it's just that. I think after enough time passes, it will fade, but maybe like sea smoke goes and tries to find him or something. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. We might get some dialogue about it. Maybe we'll get a footnote. Maybe we'll actually get some scenes. It's really, um, uh- I wonder. I don't know that they have decided already. I wonder if they were waiting to see the reaction to this. To, to yeah, to that's another. That's another part of it. it. Well, uh, I, I'm trying to think of how to talk about this in a mm. way that's non-spoilery. But th- people having enough people to ride the dragons will be an issue at some point. You can imagine, right? Because obviously, you know, the bloodlines are going to be important, and this bloodline, the people with the Targaryen bloodlines, it's rare. I do wonder if. To your point, we don't see Lenor again under a different name or something like that. Riding yeah, Sea Smoke once again. Yeah, I wonder about that too. That's that could be a way they pivot um, if they want to do something like that. It would be sneaky, like he shaved his head, so right. he looks different, and a lot of people won't know what he looked like anyway. But he's just um, a, a natural son of Corliss Valerian and some tavern lady somewhere, and we found him, and oh, yeah, he'll do this. But the, then comes the question of, 
okay, but like Rainis and Corliss and various other people would be like, hey, wait a second. You're my, <laughs> <laughs> aren't you later? You're my son. So I don't, I don't know how that necessarily would work, but it, but you feel like there is an opening for that, it, it seems like, if they wanted to go that way. Yeah, they could kind of pull back on the nice ending aspect of it by having him be killed off screen, and that just resolves all these problems. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but if they want to do like a time jump and then just have it kind of work itself out. I think that would be acceptable to the audience to say that enough time has passed. And, enough time has passed. And, or they yeah. could just add a different dragon, you know, like they could just have that dragon not get used again if they want, you know, there's, there's options. Yeah. Edgar asks, how does hopping on a dragon first give you more right to it than the person who is next in line for it? So in other words, Eamon uh, cutting the line to, to grab this dragon away from Bela. Is that... It, 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 what is the in terms of the rules does this break any particular rule I think it's like one of those unwritten rules like we hear about in sports where they're right. not official rules there's no actual penalties it's just a jerk right. thing to do don't so steal think- don't steal a dragon from a, a, a girl whose mother just died and by yeah. the way it was the mother's <laughs> dragon <laughs> yeah. yeah right yeah so I think it was a jerk move for sure, but it, there aren't any rules about it. There's no, it's all based, rooted in tradition. And even that, there isn't a lot of right. definition there. Like the Targaryens have always been kind of a smaller family. This is the first time they've had during their history as kings, who knows what happened back on Valyria. But yeah. here, they this is the kind of first time they've had like two very distinct large branches. They had that same problem early on with Magor and Aenys being t- yeah. kind of two different branches. But it never got to this level because Magor had no kids. So there weren't yeah. like two full not factions for... <laughs> with children tried, and dragons. He but he did not, yeah. <laughs> he sure did. But so, so this is all very kind of uncharted territory. They don't have defined rules on who has first dibs on dragons and things like that. Yeah, so Eamon kind of exploited an area of a gray area, I suppose, and yeah. I, I think he expected to get away with it more um, without losing an eye. But as he himself put it, he would still have taken the trade, even knowing that. I suppose. Uh, well, one of our uh, really most avid listeners, Sam, has sent like a bunch of really long emails that have analyzed uh, the potential path that the uh, the Aegon prophecy took in order to get all the way, if indeed it did get all the way to, to Rhaegar, which I believe it did. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uh, sent another really long email about dragons and it, it, it asking essentially, is it possible to create a family tree of dragons? Knowing what we know now, we're starting to see more dragons come in. We saw surely, I'm guessing Sunfire and Dreamfire and then of course Vagar in this episode. Um, understanding that these some of these dragons are laying eggs. Uh, do you think it's possible to create a family tree of dragons based on what we know right now? Mm, we can get part of the way there there's there would be very large gaps in it right. for example you know one of one of the popular theories out there is the dragon egg stolen by Alyssa Farman ended up being the ones that became Danny's three I think we all I think I think I just want it to be true yeah. <laughs> that's what I just want to be true yeah. but we don't even know which three who right. laid those three eggs because right. it's just those are just three eggs and there's lots of eggs and as um, as Lena said to Reyna, who was trying to hatch her egg in Pentosh, she's like, well, half of these don't hatch. 
right. apparently some of them can hatch much later than, than expected. There's strange circumstances. So we couldn't do a tree, but we could make a lot of connections. Like we could draw a lot of lines between some dragons. For example, it's pretty likely Vagar is the mother of a lot of the younger dragons like mm-hmm. Vermithor and maybe Silverwing, Quicksilver, some of those. Because there's not a lot of other possibilities. It can't be Balerion because right. Balerion's pretty never laid eggs. Could have been Meraxes, but Meraxes wasn't around very long. Yep. Uh, so yeah, there's a, there would be a lot of guesswork. There would be a lot of estimation, a lot of probabilities. But I would love to see it as complete as it could be, given what we know. I don't think, I'm not sure if such a resource exists. It might actually, but yeah. I know people have thought about it before, but I'm not sure it's ever been made into a visual, like sort of a family tree style thing. That would be a fun thing to have, even if it would be incomplete. I do wonder as we start to see more dragons come in, and I would imagine more dragon eggs being harvested, whether we get more information about who's laying these eggs, which dragons came from which brood, which clutch of eggs, et cetera. I, I, I'm I'm hopeful that we'll get some information on that. Uh, you mentioned uh, Meraxes, which you know leads to the question of like, how do you kill a dragon? Which leads to listener Jay, who asks, are there examples of dragon riding families sabotaging a rival's dragon? Uh, basically saying, okay, Vagar has slipped out of the grasp of the blacks. Is there something that they could do? Is there another, is there a way to harm a dragon that's not overt? That's a very good question. I'm not aware of of that. I think the standard practice of a lot of Valyrians, if they were having this type of war, I think it would be more likely that they would murder the rider. I think that would probably be easier to pull off and then maybe even steal the dragon. Like you make it a riderless dragon and then take it. That would be a much bigger gain, (laughs) you know, to actually take the dragon rather than just disable it. But I do wonder if there are certain substances like is there any poison that would work on a dragon that is in entirely uncharted territory as well if they ever did a tv show set in valyria they would have to make these decisions but there is nothing in the lore i know of that points to that sort of thing like sabotaging actual dragons i would i think it would more be aimed at the riders sabotaging their saddle like you do like you don't kill the horse you kill right you, you mess with the rider. Usually that's how it goes there as well. So, uh, I mean, dragons are different than horses because they're a lot, it's a lot easier to replace a horse. But, yeah, they're just also just really hard to harm. <laughs> yeah, there, and there are certain plots that we know about. We know that when Aegon was in the midst of his conquest and Torn Stark was coming down from the north potentially to put up some more resistance, even though a lot of the south had already fallen, uh, he had sent Brandon Snow potentially to go over. There there was a plan that was being hatched to send Brandon Snow like under cover of night into the king's camp to probably kill the riders, but it's usually framed as like do something to the dragons. But I think you're right. Probably the the easiest thing to do is like assassinate Aegon if you get in there. Um, (laughs) But of course we don't, that never came to be in Torn Knelt. And then there are, now, there are, it's heavily implied in the books that the Citadel had something to do with the extinction of of dragons. Now, dragons are going to take a major hit just because of warfare, and we're going to pro- we're going to see that happen. But uh, in Feast, uh, the mysterious Archmaester Marwyn 
basically tells Sam, hey, who do you think killed the dragons last time? That was us. We did that. Uh, you know, um, now this could be Citadel PR, right? This could be maybe he's overselling the the role that the Citadel played. We also know that the Citadel very potentially has a couple of books that would uh, tell you how to harm a dragon. Potentially, there is a, a scene in Dance of Dragons where Tyrion is, uh, you know, he's wondering if he's going to find like a library in Volantis that will have books on <laughs> dragons. And he's thinking like, oh, um, Septon Barth's dragons, worms and and wyverns. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll run into a copy of that. Now, Septon Barth uh, was one of the most learned men in history, but like a lot of his books got burned uh, by uh, Baylor the Blessed, and then uh, and then Tyrion thinks about a book called Blood and Fire, aka the Death of the Dragons, which supposedly exists in the Citadel in a fragmentary state. All of we don't know what's in those books, but clearly by the titles, you would assume that they are studies of dragons, how they breed, their life cycle, etc. All of which is to say. I think we can very, very safely assume that maesters have been studying dragons for a very long time and that to study them would have to include the question of what can we do about a dragon? Is there anything we can do? Can we kill yeah. them in any way? Can we poison the eggs? What can we do? Uh, and maybe that's an open question, too, because, of course, the dragons did die out, though they did survive the coming years that we are about to watch on this show. So it's an open question. I, I do wonder if this is just Citadel Citadel propaganda or what? Yeah, there's. I think there's some element of propaganda to it, but as much as I'm a little skeptical of what they could do to adult dragons, I think there's yeah. plenty they could do to the to the babies and to the eggs. Like that seems yeah. a lot more, like they're a much more fragile state there. And there was an unusual number of hatchlings that came out, but didn't develop they got they mm. shrank or didn't grow very much and that was kind of unusual and it's it's tempting to believe the forces of magic were at work there and it has something to do with that on the other hand that kind of feels a little bit like the heron hall's curse explanation well right. is that really right. what's going on you know maybe that's a great it's a cover story so there's definitely room and you want and the maesters would have motivation for it not just from their own power not just to rise their level up the the value of the citadel as compared to other institutions but because they saw what happened like as a humanitarian yeah. thing is like look what these dragons it did was, to the it realm. was terrible yeah yeah so they're like let's never have that happen again like if there's it's it's like it would be like if it's like an anti-nuclear war right. kind of thing like look let's never have a nuclear war again after we we've, we had one we saw how bad it was let's never do that again and if there's people in the world that who are close to the devices that say, no, we're not going to, we're never going to do this again. We're going to sabotage these devices rather than use them. The dragons are maybe the closest equivalent to that in this world. And, and the maesters do have that access for the most part. And uh, they could pull this off. Uh, whether they did or not, eh, it's a great theory, great mystery. Uh, I'm definitely open to it. But it's it's also pretty well hidden. They're not dummies. Yeah. So they, they, yeah, they did dummies. it. They did it. They covered their tracks somewhat well. It's like the Damon thing. We suspect they did it and they're probably happy right. with that. But without strict proof, what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, Kevin asks a really interesting question. Um, since Fire and Blood is more of a historical text uh, from uh, not 100% accurate 
and biased sources. How do you interpret differences from the book versus the show? For example, you mentioned that in the books, Kristen Cole kills Joffrey at a tournament, whereas in the show, the murder happens at during the wedding or what was the party before the wedding that turned into the wedding. Do you interpret this as an inaccurate historical source in the book or is or is this a rewrite in the show? This is an interesting question, an interesting way to think about it. Uh, I, I wonder what you think. So, for instance, uh, Lenore, do, do you feel like this is they got it wrong or is it a show rewrite? I think there's very little you can't write off as just differences in the sources. Having read as much like real world history as I have, uh, yeah. for, especially for ancient sources, it's different when you're reading stuff about it happened in like the 70s. But even that, when you're talking about like government secrets, like we still don't know fully what happened in like... Right. I don't know, Watergate, for example, um, or at like Chernobyl, for example. Yeah. Stick with the nuclear <laughs> example. Yeah. But there's, I mean, we know a lot about it, but there's still certain things that we that we're missing. So the farther back you go, the more that fog of history enters the picture. Like I've read texts about ancient wars where there's significant divergences, stuff that that is much bigger than what we're seeing here, much bigger than whether this guy was knifed at a fair or yeah. whether he maybe escaped which the history books wouldn't probably know anyway. Like, it's another thing. Like, the history books aren't going to know if Larry Strong is as good as he seems to be at covering his tracks. How is the history going to reflect that? Right. How would a history, like, how uh, you need a narrative, like, a, someone looking behind the curtain to possibly have these answers. You'd have to see inside their head. So, to me, there's plenty of room for that. So, I prefer, but ultimately, I think it comes down to what you want. I, so, given that wide open nature of it, I think if you want to view it as separate canons, you should. But I enjoy it more seeing it as a different interpretation because that was the the energy we're given from Fire and Blood. And it just it's, right. it's, it's we're continuing that. I just add another source to the pile, which is reflective of how real history works. So I prefer that angle, but I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do it. That's just my 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 vibe. I, I think for me, I agree with you. I think for me, the my general rule of thumb is anything having to do with dates or changed ages or people aging up and down uh, or things like um, the Great Council of 101 coming down to Rhaenys and Viserys, not Rhaenys and Laenor, things like that are adaptations. You know, you want to yeah. make it more uh, easier to digest the story, kind of more dramatic. It certainly is more dramatic if it comes down to Viserys and, and Rhaenys in the finals rather than, you know, Rhaenys and a six-year-old child or however he, old he was at the time. Uh, because then it feels like she really was done an injustice in that moment. You could, you could really feel it, whereas, uh, you know, the other way you could also say, well, the the, the realm is choosing – if it's Viserys versus Laenor, the realm is also choosing like to to not do a you know a regency, which is just chaotic and can be a big deal, and no one wants to deal with that. So I think I, for a rule of thumb, I think when it's when we're aging up characters or aging them down, but mostly aging them up, as we've seen with uh, Rhaenyra, Alicent, and Balin Reyna uh, and the kids, um, that is an adaptation. But when it's stuff like Laenor, stuff that is a complete surprise from the books and feels like it <laughs> slipped into that kind of that hole where historians can't see into that feels like a reveal that is additive mm. to the, to the books. That's yeah. just the way I, I think about it, but I agree yeah, with it's you. It's kind of what you yeah. want. Yeah. It is a different view. Like you're hearing dialogue of people that you would never have been able to hear under historical right. circumstances. Right. Yeah. Right. I like that take. Yeah. 
Um, here's an interesting one. Uh, Reed asks, did dragons cause the doom? Hmm. I I don't think they caused the doom. I think the Valyrian control over volcanoes got to be too Mm -hmm. deep. Think of like the dwarves going too deep into Moria and unleashing the Balrog, that kind of thing. Because it's it's, it's hinted at in the world of Ice and Fire that the the Valyrian sorcerers were kind of drawing energy from the volcanoes, which Viserys hints at directly. Not hints at, he flat out says it in episode two or three. And so if they're drawing their energy from that, well, I think they just they drew too much or they got got out of control. One suggestion is that there was assassinations back and forth, sort of in line with what we were yeah. talking about with the dragon rider stuff, where they rather than targeting the dragons, they target the individuals. So if you have sorcerers that are kind of keeping it on in check, keeping those volcanoes the way they need to be to not blow up and they start murdering these sorcerers. They meaning oh, there's a lot of possibilities who they could be. They could be the faceless men. They could be yeah. other Valyrian houses. They could be both. Um, either way, it's not like they have some bottom line gauge to make sure you don't let, don't let it go below this level or it's all going to blow. So whatever happened, I think it was about losing control of the volcanoes. Uh, not, uh, so in pursuit of draconic power indirectly led to this, but not the dragons right. didn't Correct. directly lead to it. I think more indirect. Yeah. And I yeah. think the descriptions of the doom such that they are. Uh, talking about, you know, the 14 flames kind of exploding as one and uh, lava and explosions throughout the land kind of leads you to believe that whatever the cause, the volcanoes were directly involved in whatever happened. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're the big one. Gina, Corporate Mark, and some others asked, Younger Allison made such a big deal over Rhaenyra allegedly uh, hooking up with Damon, allegedly. Fast forward <laughs> 15-ish years, and she's willingly forcing her son to marry her sister. What is this hypocrisy? What gives? Well, I think that Allison has changed. For one thing, yeah. she, was a, she was young. She was a little more naive, a, a better person in a lot of ways, but... She's been told over and over by her father and now congratulated when she finally bursts with this kind of energy of my kids are going to die if I don't win the Game of Thrones. It's very much Cersei mm-hmm. to Ned. You, this is the Game of Thrones. You win or you die. There's no middle ground. She's convinced of that now. For better or worse, for right or wrong, it doesn't really matter whether she's right or wrong. This is what she's acting on. And... In order to win, she's got to sacrifice her morals. A lot of yeah. that, and that's a recurring theme with Game of Thrones. Power corrupts, right? That's that's a real world thing too, of course. Uh, which means you sacrifice your values, you sacrifice the things that matter to you, your ideals, in order to uphold this thing that's quote unquote more important. Which arguably it is. If your children's survival depends on it, then you would be willing to make sacrifices even of your own values to keep them alive. So I I sort of sympathize with that. I don't sympathize with Allison's in a lot of ways, but this is like trying to put myself in her shoes, try to understand why she's so paranoid and angry and mad. I sort of get it. Like a lot of it is, is her own father's pressing this on her, telling her over and over for 15 years that look, you do this or your kids are going to die. Do this. Your kids are going to die. Do this. or Your kids are going to die. And yeah. So that, I think that's what it is. She's had to sacrifice her own things that she held to be virtues in order to stay alive or for her kids, I, for her I, kids to stay alive. It's not necessarily for herself. I think that there's also something of one blocking Rhaenyra, who had attempted to to broker a, a kind of like peace marriage pact 
by marrying uh, Jace to Helena, and here's a way to one to stop her doing that. You get the sense that it, in that moment, certainly when Rhaenyra proposes that deal at the small council meeting, again, which was a very generous deal, Alicent sees it as weakness, not as a gener- not as like a genuine attempt to reach out. And I think you could see in that you could see how in that moment. Uh, Alicent would be like, well, whatever Rhaenyra wants, I want the opposite thing. So therefore, let's do this. <laughs> and yeah. and I think there's also something to it. You mentioned it, like how it's been drilled in her, the present danger for her children should Rhaenyra take the throne. Um, they're constantly under threat. And I think here is a way to show that Aegon is legitimately a Targaryen. What do Targaryens do? They marry their siblings. They marry yeah. their siblings. It's just what they do. So they here's do. a way to say he's Aegon. He's Aegon, just like Aegon the Conqueror, and just like Aegon the Conqueror, he married his sister, and that's what Targaryens do. He's a legitimate Targaryen. So that one day, should the time come, you know, if maybe he's going to ascend the throne, we can point to all these symbols of Targaryen legitimacy and say that's the real article, not this brown-haired guy over here yeah totally agree last question from zachary uh, this is an interesting one uh what's the significance of laris's firefly sigil and mm-hmm. uh and the, the, the which we saw uh, both on the on the lapels of his various hench people and then also on his staff yeah. Well, I think they, to start, I think they wanted to have some sort of identifier to make sure we knew those were his men. Right. And, but why the firefly specifically? Well, uh, there's a couple things, symbolic meanings here that are somewhat relevant. Uh, I think mostly it was just an artistic choice, but some of the symbolism behind fireflies definitely applies. One is that it's, they are symbols of death and rebirth, which mm-hmm. in his case, he, there's a, a fire and he, becomes the Lord of Hall. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's crazy he, how that happens. Right. Yeah. Also, fireflies do what color do they glow? Green. green. Right. And he made a big deal out of the 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 fire of at the high tower being green and it's the greens. So I think that might have been part of their thinking. And then there's there's they're also a symbol of of crossing over. Like the the some some traditions hold that fireflies have the souls of the living. They like their vessels to going to the next life. So there's a lot of just kind of cool superstitions behind them. Um, but I'm guessing there's a little more to it that might be revealed later because... Yeah, I think so, I think too. the stuff I said is pretty cool, but it's also still kind of vague, <laughs> except for maybe the green thing, right? Like, that's... A, <laughs> and he did set fire to... He did kill his own family with fire, so I guess there is that. <laughs> like the, that part applies. Has there, has there ever been... Uh, how strong uh, their sigil is... Uh, three colorful lines. I think it's blue, red, and green, and like a hand or a fist. Yeah, like the uh, trident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And has there? Have, do you recall an, another example of a notable member of an esteemed house who used a symbol, not the sigil? Of their house, I guess Littlefinger kind of. Littlefinger well, really. kind of is is kind, kind of the of, example. His yeah. house isn't as famous, so he's not you know. Right. But but also the, um, but I guess that is one of the best examples. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there's there's probably a few others of modifications, but this is more offbeat than you usually see. You usually see a twist on the existing sigil, like they add to it. There's yeah. usually the blue, red, and green is still represented somehow, but there's, yeah, that's not a firefly on blue, red, and green. This is a totally 
completely different thing, which is which is kind of Littlefinger, like you said, because Littlefinger's family sigil is the Titan of Bravos' head, and his is a mockingbird, which that completely unrelated. Uh, so maybe they're kind of go for that energy. I mean, there's a lot we've already pointed out, like five or six different parallels to Littlefinger in this one, but but it's also there's also a lot of Kyburn and, and Varys in there too. Yeah, so he's sort of a, he's sort of an amalgam of all of the the three big spy masters we've seen, with also some of his own uh, flavoring Firefly. F- flavoring (laughs) well Aziz thank you so much for joining us uh, on this special edition of Ask the Maester where can people find your pod well thanks so much for having me this was a blast I appreciate getting to answer a a different set of questions from from a different audience it's a lot of fun really good questions y'all we are over at History of Westeros podcast you can find us on YouTube under that name or on any podcast platform we've been at this for about 10 years and getting deep into the nerdy detail that's our specialty Uh, We've got a ton of episodes on historical topics throughout Westeros, some related to this, some not so much. And, uh, of course, we're covering the show as well and any future shows. I was just thinking about, wow, has it really? It's uh, I think I've been listening to you guys for like eight or nine years, maybe 10 years. I think think that's right, because you messaged us a long time ago. I think it was that long ago. Yeah. Yeah, I was just such a fan of of what y'all do. I think you are the best that do it uh, and have been, again, for anybody interested in this stuff, uh, Aziz and Ashai have been doing this a long time, con- continuously, nonstop, <laughs> have been doing this. So again, thank you so much for joining us. And of course, don't miss the new HBO original series, House of the Dragon, out now, streaming on HBO Max Sundays at 9. And send your questions. We, we, we'd love to hear from you. Send your questions to askthemaster at gmail.com. Huge thank you to Aziz from History of Westeros, to a great friend Cody Ziegler, and of course to Rosie Knight. Rosie, what do you have to plug, 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 plug? Hello, yes, it's me. Um, I, uh, you can find me, Rosie Marks, on Instagram or Letterboxd. If you are listening to this on Friday, sadly you missed my first two panels at New York Comic Con, but you can come and see me tonight if you are at the convention. I'll be doing a panel about the new VHS movie. I am a big VHS franchise fan. It's VHS 99, and that will be at 7.15 in the convention center. I'm sure you can Google it. I think the panel is called VHS Goes to Hell. So it should be very fun. Uh, some of the directors will be there. One of the directors made this movie called Tragedy Girls, which I loved. So that should be really cool. And it's nice. I love doing superhero stuff, but I also love doing horror stuff. So that'll be fun. Folks, catch the next episode on October 14th. Subscribe to the show on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at, at @xrvpod And check out the Discord to meet and hang out with tons of other listeners. Uh, Rosie and I are there. We're responding to people. And we love to, to take in the conversations. Remember, if you have questions about House of the Dragon, send them to askthemaster at gmail.com. And we love your five-star reviews. We love them. We Woo! love them. We love them. We got to have them. Here's one from Galandriel. Jason Rosie are the best. Thank you so much. That's we appreciate very, very it. I love hearing people talk about the things I love with so much joy and excitement. I always learn something new and look forward to the new episodes. Thank you so much, Galandriel. Uh, we really appreciate it. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroot provide video production support. Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. See you next time. Bye. Bye. 
Hey, Mike. This is his stuff from here. I want to talk about Vagot today. Listen, Mike, I think people who know me, who've heard me on the show, they know I'm a rules guy. I'm a stickler for the rules, right? You know, the, the unwritten rules as well, you know. But I'm going to surprise you, I think, Mike. I, uh, yes, Bela, she called next on Vagot. But I gotta, I gotta say, I think that kid Amon is right. If if you want to claim the dragon, you gotta claim the dragon, Mike. You can't let a dragon like that just sit there. I, I'm not saying it wasn't a dick move, but uh, but what are you gonna do? Vega's Vega. It's a historic dragon, Mike. It's the oldest dragon around. That dragon was flying around with Ve- with with Balerion, the the Black Dread. That that uh, dragon was uh, was uh, conquering Westeros, and you can't let a dragon like that just sit around. Once you once you find it, you gotta bond with it. You, you and once it's open, you gotta make sure you close the deal, Mike. So Eamon did what he had to do. It was a dick move from the kid, but uh, you know, but he did it. Also, Halbrand is sore on Mike. I'll take my answer off the air, Mike. Thank you. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day, or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.